You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Knock that fire down, 19. Copy, Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19. All new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. theater lovers both out and proud and on the dl and welcome back to broadway breakdown a podcast discussing the history and legacy of american theater's most exclusive address broadway this series is called underestimated and it is covering shows that either had mild success when they first premiered on broadway or no success at all but have since gone on to have a long and healthy life i'm your host matt Koplick, the least famous and most opinionated of all the broadway podcast hosts and with me today is the godmother of the breakdown, uh, the pod mother, <laughs> the pod mother, if you will. Uh, please welcome back to the shoe, Allie Gordon. Hi, Allie. Wow. Thank you. Um, are people mad yet? Have you gotten any comments yet that I need to stop coming on the show? No. Uh, I, no one. This is the one. Then. This is the one. Well. I've been pretty lucky. No one has, like, responded with negative feedback about the pod. There have been people who have been like, you know your episodes are long, right, girl? I'm like, yeah, they're long. Like it or you don't know. like it. Just, it's fine. Okay. Well, that's good to know. I'm. Th- you're going to get your first negative feedback today. <laughs> it's true. Today's the day where we just did one too many Allie Gordons and all the listeners I think are- they're going to be mad, disappointed at best. Why do you think they're going to be disappointed with you? I don't know. I just, sometimes, you, you know, like, when... when you know how, like in the in the later seasons of the Brady Bunch, when they kept bringing in like cut like cousin Oliver or whatever it was, and people were like, "This is killing the show." I think that's <laughs> I think that's me. <laughs> you're but so then you're saying that you're both Cindy and Bobby and cousin Oliver combined because you yeah 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 because I've just been here for a while. You have been here for a while. I mean, if anything, it's more like you're Urkel because. You came in at the beginning, everyone loved you, and then you wore out your welcome with the hot machine. Yeah, overstood. Yeah. Do you remember the end of 30 Rock when 
Jack is trying to tank NBC on purpose. Mm-hmm. And so, like, any idea anybody has a sh- for a show just gets made. Yeah. That's that's what it's like, where you're just like, oh, I don't know. I guess we'll just uh, we'll just throw Allie on here. Yeah, you're, you are the breakdown's equivalent to God Cop. I am God Cop. Yeah. Let um, us pray. To who? To who? <laughs> it's so, so good. It's so stupid. Um, I love it so much. I do feel qualified to speak on our subject today as uh i was gonna ask did you see me in this show in high school i did well so first of all before we get into that i can't remember before we before we get into that ali alessandro gordon yes what musical are we talking about today we are finally talking about hashtag justice for smile uh smile the musical it is on the artwork for the podcast. You I know, knew I'm, this was I'm coming. I'm very moved that I am part of the like titular hashtag movement justice for smile. Like I get to like put my stamp on this musical that has been the sort of like the ghost of Christmas future for this podcast the entire time it's been made. You've always just been like, and blah, 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 smile. We'll talk about that later. Like, and here we are. Here we are. Here we are. I mean, the only, the only other show that listeners are like, one day we'll get a three-hour episode discussing it is Carousel. But that is, that's got to be for a whole other series. Exactly. Point. Do you remember um, that you asked me to pitch you some ideas for the title for this series of like, what has become underestimated? Do you remember what my suggestion was? I don't remember your suggestion. It was the Carrie Diaries. <laughs> <laughs> and just make it all about Carrie. Just like I knew Carrie would be part of it, and so I, it's not a good suggestion, but I do like it. I mean, it's it, it it was a good one. If I were to do a series about Carrie, which spoiler alert, next week's episode is about Carrie. But if I were to do a whole See? series about it, that would absolutely be the title. That's the yeah. one. I do remember. Okay, I'm so excited. I can't believe we're talking about Smile. I know, fucking, fucking, finally. Uh, so let's. You asked me a question, and before I answer it, uh, let me ask you a question. Ali, what is your history with Smile? Okay, Smile was my senior year musical. Uh, It's because it's a show, as you will hear soon, that is populated entirely by young women. So when you are doing a high school musical and your population is entirely young women, it's a great show to do. Mm. Um, Because it was my senior show, I knew I was going to get like a lead. I got to be Doria. I was probably the most miscast Doria in the history of the show ever being produced. Such uh, a I Robin would, like, that got cast as a Doria. I would never play Doria professionally. There's just like no room that I would walk into where they wouldn't be like, and it's Robin. Like there's just no way. Absolutely. Um, but I'm so glad I had that experience because and now that I'm like revisiting the show more, Doria has every single best song in the show, even songs that aren't full songs. When it gets to her part in the song, it is the best part of the song. So it was like a joy to sing. I like lo- yeah. <laughs> loved it. And um that's why I can't remember if you saw it. I didn't see it in person, and I don't know why, but I did see video. You showed me video of it. Uh, you showed me video of your Disneyland, of your Until Tomorrow Night, and then of your bit in Shine, where I remember you were really, really proud of your Avita arms at the end. You did Ava Perone arms. Wait, I don't remember so, that. <laughs> and uh, it's so much to talk about, but in Shine, you know, five different girls get a little bit that they get to say to the Elks. Um, uh huh. Yeah, it is the Elks. Uh, yeah. Yeah. 
I was trying to think because they made a change from Broadway to the licensed version. It's still the Elks. Just what Sandra Case says to the Elks is different. She says she doesn't in the on Broadway. She says my dad's had antlers for 15 years. In the licensed version, she says my father's been an elk for 15 years. Just making it a little more clear to people. A little clearer for the people who don't get it. Well, there yeah. are a lot of dum dums out there, Allie Gordon. <laughs> well, I'm one of them. Proud representative. Proud dum dum, proud sexy dum dum. That's why you were Doria. But Doria's whole Thank bit you. about the Galleria, and she says it's a, it's a credit to the vision of your business community. You ended with Avita Arms, and you were so proud of that. This sounds choice. right. Yeah, and you were so proud of that <laughs> I choice. Don't remember it, but it sounds right. I also remember. Um, I can't deny it. At the time, I remember because we we watched it. We watched your video and we talked about it, and you were like, "Oh, I'm so proud of this moment." Blah blah. I wonder if like anyone got it, and. In our minds, we thought it was such an inside, like, culty reference to do Avita Arms. In retrospect, it's, like, one of the top five most recognizable musical theater poses of all time. Of all time. I thought you were going to say that we as teenagers were like, do people get Smile? Which does sound like a conversation we, you and I would have had as teenagers because we're also having it again now. <laughs> so, yeah, I feel, like, I believe that. Well, so yeah, so, okay. I probably have talked about it at some point. My history with the show is sort of connected with you i first heard about it everyone take a shot this actually might be the last episode where i make this reference but uh stage door manor is where i first heard about smile jeff murphy who's a longtime director i don't think he directs there anymore but he loves smile and would do it there like every three summers yeah i mean again when you have a bunch of young women it is the perfect show to do because it is all young women and they all have something fun to do in the show yeah. Well, on paper, it seems like a really great idea. And then there's a lot of stuff about the show that is a little tricky to pull off and intentionally so. And unfortunately, there are a lot of high school directors that really fucking suck. So and we'll get into all that. But anyway, uh, I just remember Jeff Murphy talking about it all the time. And then all the girls would always sing Disneyland. And then I got into the show on my own after all of that and then when you got to do it senior year I was really pumped and then you gave me a burned copy of the demo that Samuel French sends out to productions of Smile oh illegal come and get me come and get me Sam French but (laughs) I remember us we we analyzed the Sean Christensen actress we analyzed Jodie Benson's riff during Until Tomorrow Night oh the best the best. And you and I were like the only ones carrying that torch for Smile. And I feel like in di- for different reasons, but we it was just us. And we would talk about the show. And I remember you had a whole bit about like, what's Sean Christensen's talent in the talent show? What and is her talent in the talent show? You used to say, I'm so glad that I remember all of this because you remember I'm so none glad of too. It. You remember everything. I just, I, things are so important to me that aren't important to anyone else. And I don't know why that is, Ali Gordon. But you, no, I appreciate that. I'm glad someone does. You had a whole bit. (laughs) Your bit was about a bit, and I love this sort of hat on a hat. Of course. (laughs) Your bit was like, what if Sean's talent at the talent show was like racist stand-up? So... (laughs) She, yeah, she was the first. She was the first Jeff Foxworthy. She had puppets. Mm-hmm. She was doing stereotypes. She was doing accents. She shouldn't have been doing. Hundred <laughs> percent. I stand by that. Yeah, she was the first person to be like, "You ever notice how Asian people?" And like today, we would just stop it immediately. And go, nope, no more. Nope. Uh, Wait, I said the and, wrong comedian. Who's the guy with the puppets? I don't know. That, that, that's not the person oh who God. does Madam. Jeff Dunham. I said Jeff Foxworthy. Jeff Foxworthy is, you, you know, you're a redneck because. Yeah. Do, do you know what I'm saying? Well, yeah, but, oh ju- but the, it I would have be... to let my cat out of my door. He's, Go for it. I have to let my cat out of my door. Sorry, my cat is homophobic and he didn't want to be hearing about Smile anymore. No, of course not. Who would? But 
I think Sean's racist jokes would sort of be the inverse of that. So instead of like, you know, you're a redneck when, but it'd be more like, you know, you're seeing a such and such when such and such. And yeah, yeah. I'm saying, you know who I'm talking about? The guy with the puppets, he like won or was on America's Got Talent or something like that. And all of his puppets were like weird racial stereotypes. And he does, and he's like a ventriloquist. Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't, but I, I believe you. Well, that's fine. I, I was going to be like, you should look it up, but actually you shouldn't. No, I don't um, intend to. But that's, I do think Sean Christensen actually invented that genre. She mm. was like, my my talent is, is ventriloquism. And they were like, oh, how lovely. And then she was just doing um horrible ethnic stereotypes. Yeah, it's why Sandra K. McAfee ends up winning. Uh, because her <laughs> puppet isn't racist. But... Yeah, so uh, my love for Smile just has always grown over the years as I have gotten to know more about the history of the show and and I've analyzed more of the lyrics and my love for Howard Ashman has grown. And I understand that it is flawed. It is not a perfect musical, although I also would argue very few are. But I think it doesn't get enough credit, especially now, because people just know that it flopped on Broadway and the Broadway version is quite different from the licensed version. So people don't really... When they think of the show, they think of, you know, the six-week flop on Broadway. They don't think of the one that's actually, like, tighter, a little more acerbic, has a better uh, vision uh, for the story. And so I, I, I always, I've always just been carrying the torch. I've wanted Encores to do it forever. I think a lot of it is actually incredibly relevant now. And I yeah, would, for yeah, sure. I would just really love to see it done again and done well. But we'll get into all that in a second. Allie Gordon. Yes. In a nutshell, what is Smeal? about okay smeal is about a bunch of uh teenage beauty pageant contestants who are all uh invited because they have won their i guess their like regional town whatever it is Mm -hmm. Uh, they are congregating in santa rosa california to compete in the 1985 california young american miss beauty pageant that is essentially it because the entire musical follows them from packing up their bags to leave to the moments after winning the title at the end of Young American Miss. In between there, we get to meet a couple different contestants, including our two protagonists, uh, Robin and Doria. Doria is the I've been watching pageant since I was a little girl contestant. Robin sort of ended up here because she has good grades and like is looking for some things to sort of flesh out her resume, but ends up sort of excelling. And uh, Doria is encouraging her as somebody who doesn't believe she can win so she's like i'll win through you yeah then there are also some adult characters uh they are not as fun to talk about because their stuff just is less robust but there's the pageant director who was a one-time young american miss winner uh there's uh bob who sells rvs yeah (laughs) there's a choreographer there's the people who come and say that ramp can't be there i don't know it's not as fun when we're getting into the adult stuff but the teenager stuff is really fun because we get to see their talents and see the um angst of being their age and having to be in such a high stakes situation and i feel that uh part of what makes the show so successful is that while it's very acerbic and very it's not like condemning of the idea of a beauty pageant, but it like it really shows what it does to a young girl's psyche. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also like really treats the teenage characters with a lot of empathy. And like in songs like Until Tomorrow Night, like I, they are never the butt of the joke. You're really like feeling for them as they go through this, you know, what feels like a life altering experience for them. Yeah, I think that's all very fair. The show is really kind of satirical of the 80s. And it's ironic because it was written in the middle of the 80s. And it's so it's very uh, satirical of the culture of America at that time of 
of beauty pageants, I would say. Not again, as you said, like it's not making fun of beauty pageants, but it is sort of showing the cracks in the system. Uh, I think is the right. best way to describe it. Yeah, and I hear you. The adults are kind of a little on the boring side, but I th- I also think that's kind of the point. It's just sort of it it does make the show lag sometimes, but. We can also sort of go into it with the movie that it is based on, because like many a Broadway musical, Smile is based on a movie. And you watched the movie for the very first time. Yeah, for the very first time. It was so strange. It is a weird movie. It was like not at all what I was expecting. No. And so I first watched the movie a few months ago with Adam Ellsbury, and he knows the movie way better than I ever did. And so we watched it because he knows how much I love Smile. And he's like, you are going to be flabbergasted, A, of like, you know, the moments that Howard Ashman lifts verbatim and then the things that he changes, like, whole hog. Yeah. And, and I mean, it, it, it is genius what he did as a as an adapter. Uh-huh. Is that a word? Yeah, like, and I feel like an adapter is a thing you plug into the wall because your plug didn't work. But, like, <laughs> yeah. I feel like there's a better word for it. But, like, the things that he did lift are genius and the things that he did cut were so correct. Uh-huh. Do you know what I mean? Like, he, he really went through and was like extremely inci- incisive with what he chose you um, you didn't want a song like, about kissing a chicken butt ally that's something you didn't oh want oh my god what was all of that stuff <laughs> um but like <laughs> the listeners were like the like, fucking like, episode <laughs> even like the the little moments like that were like lifted verbatim like doria being like and get some vaseline on your teeth it'll make your lips glide over do you know what i mean like mm-hmm. all those little pieces of dialogue are lifted like directly from the movie i was i was very um I had no idea it was going to be so close in some parts. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. There's a weird subplot in the movie. What we're referencing is like there's a weird subplot with like a a thing that's like like the like being the Elks or whatever it is. Um, but it's like a, a small town ritual type thing where it's like a social club slash whatever. But you can age out of it. And this one guy is like taking really badly to the idea that he's like going to lose this social circle and like threatens suicide it's yeah so what happened there yeah well okay so um so let's put a pin in that and talk a little bit about how we got some smile and i think that's a great section to sort of discuss the adult characters and where the movie makes them more enjoyable to watch but their plot line is kind of awful yeah it's off the rails and ashman gave streamlined those plot lines and made it better but also made them a little less fun to watch because it's not so insane so smile as we were just acknowledging, was based off of a 1975 film written by Jerry Belson, directed by Michael Ritchie. And the movie is sort of an indie cult classic. It didn't do very well when it came out, but has sort of always been talked about as this fan favorite. People who know it, love it. A lot of young actresses who went on to have prominent careers came out of that movie one of the most is uh, Melanie Griffith yeah playing sort of the Sean Christensen character in the movie but that character is not really that character in the movie uh and I will also say like right off the bat we, we will get into the Maria Gonzalez of it all the show really I think especially the licensed version takes what the movie did with Maria and just makes it so much better because there is a specific line in the movie that Melanie Griffith has that is meant to be funny. It comes off as super racist now, which is when they're like in the dressing rooms talking about Maria, who's barely a character in the movie. And the other girls are like, God, like, is it annoying being her roommate? And Melanie Griffith says ever so matter of factly, no, it's fine. She mostly just makes guacamole. And 
it's not meant to be like a racist dig. It's meant to be honest. And I'm like, that's where the movie's kind of dark satirical edge doesn't age well. But yes. Yeah. So again, we'll get into all of that. The idea for turning it into a musical, I believe, came from Marvin Hamlish, who is the composer of this show and is most famous for composing a chorus line. And then eventually uh, they're playing our song. Basically, the, the, the show was meant to go into production in the early 80s. Hamlish got together with Carolyn Lee and Thomas Meehan at the uh, at first. Thomas Meehan is best known as the librettist for Annie, and then eventually the producers in Hairspray. Carolyn Lee, lyricist of Little Me and a few other shows that never really went anywhere. And then Thomas Meehan was replaced by Jack Hefner, Hefner who wrote the play Vanities, I believe. Yes. Yes. Uh, you would know Vanities, wouldn't you, Allie? Well, I worked in a library and I had to check out that play to a lot of people. <laughs> so... So I, I'm correct. He's the one who wrote Vanities. Um, uh, you said the name was Jack Hef- Hefner. Yes, Heifner? Jack yeah. Hefner. Correct. Hefner. Great. Because but there's an I in there, so that's just really misleading. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Also, Carolyn Lee, you get that was bit that was big. Uh, the best is yet to come. Erasure. Oh, with this show. No, just like her, the, she wrote the lyrics for the song "The Best Is Yet to Come," which I would say like is arguably one of the most popular songs ever recorded. Yeah, Maybe? she's she's she wrote the lyrics for a couple of 50s, 60s pop standards that no one really recognizes that she wrote. She was a really, really good lyricist. She was also an infamous pain in the ass, which is why she didn't work on a lot of shows because she was just awful to her collaborators, and not in a way where you look back and you read and go like oh no she was just a strong woman with opinion like yeah, she was yeah, she was like, na- she was a nasty person she she you weren't like actually that's feminism <laughs> no you don't carolyn lee is not a look back and see feminism person she's a look back and go oh she just didn't collaborate she was just yeah, like yeah yeah, yeah uh, <laughs> re- refused to like ever like she would write a lyric and then refuse to change any of them uh, and she wrote some great lyrics, but, you know, you always want to try to see if you can do better. You want to adapt with your collaborators. She was never that person. So by the 80s, she definitely was, like, not in demand. Um, they do a workshop in 1983 that was directed and choreographed by Graciela Danielle, of all people. Interesting. And, yeah, and a young Jen Krakowski was in it. And <gasps> Really? Mm-hmm. I don't know I'm who star-struck. she played. I'm starstruck even to hear it. <laughs> I well, a lot of people came and went with this show. Uh, the The workshop basically went nowhere. It was considered way too dark. Hefner's libretto was very much in line with the original screenplay, which is very odd and dark. And Carolyn Lee's lyrics were, like, really intense. She had a whole song yeah. where the girls were talking about, like, what got them to the pageant. Like, because you have to, you know, pay money for your airfare and then, you know, for lodgings and stuff like that. It's not cheap to be in a pageant, which is ironic because the winner gets scholarship money. But... Uh, apparently in Carolyn Lee's lyrics, there's a song where they talk about how they got to the pageant. One girl talks about, like, how she basically turned tricks in her town to get there. And one girl talked about, like, yeah, I had to bed the whole football team. Uh, Damn. Yeah, very um, sharp objects, that Gillian Flynn book. Uh, mm-hmm. But, yeah, the, the workshop basically everyone was like, this is really intense. This is not a musical comedy. And this is the 80s where the mega musicals were coming in and taking over. And everyone's like, shit, we need to get American musicals back out in front front and center. They're not doing yeah. well. So everyone's just trying to make musicals bigger and make them more uh, wholehearted and earnest. And Neil Simon was floated around for a second to come in and rewrite the whole libretto. But at the 
end, Howard Ashman comes in. And it's ironic because Howard Ashman was auditioned the first time around to write the show, and he was turned down. And then Little Shop exploded. And right. Yeah. And Do, is the assumption that he was turned down because he was basically a nobody at the time? Yeah, I think, yeah, when they were auditioning, I think Little Shop had just premiered at the WGA and he had done God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater with Mencken. So he was right. sort of an up and comer. But Little Shop had not exploded yet. And then by the time he got turned down and they did the workshop, Little Shop becomes this huge sensation. They win the drama desk over Cats. And then, right. you know, the million dollar movie deal. And then when he gets hired back i think little shop the movie is in pre-production so he's definitely yeah he went from being an up-and-comer to like this is the the guy 100 percent. yeah exactly and working with marvin hamlish who's like already at this point a uh, maybe an egot winner already uh yeah he's an egot at this point and the iron the irony is that so marvin hamlish was like the big dog here because he had chorus line which was you know super huge and then they're playing our song which was a very sizable hit and while he's working on Smile, he has his first flop that plays in London, but no one really considers that, you know, anything because it's London. It's not Broadway. Smile is, is Marvin Hamlish's first Broadway flop. But because of the cloud he had coming in, it, like, it was a little more like anything he said went. He was also one of the producers on the show. But the funny thing is, like, Ashman gets turned down for the book the first time, then comes back and gets offered book, lyrics, and direction. So... Hmm. Yeah, and he got blamed a lot at the time for, you know, oh, you shouldn't be directing a new musical if you're also one of the writers. And he didn't get as much clout at the time as he should have because Marvin Hamlish, again, like coming in with all of his cachet with Chorus Line and Money, he had a lot of things to say. And then, you know, they went through a lot of producer troubles and then the, the producers they did eventually get leaned on them heavily when they were out of town. So a lot of that Ashman criticisms at the time turned out not to really be founded. But this is to say, they go into writing of the show. The one thing Ashman does convince Hamlet to do is basically throw out his entire score that he wrote with Carolyn Lee. The only thing they keep is the melody for the title song, which Ashman writes a whole bunch of new lyrics for. Otherwise, Hamlet writes a new score. Uh, wow. Yeah, which I'm good on both of them for that. Yeah, and, seriously, especially since like this score is so solid all the way through that you're like, damn, what got like what got left behind? Yeah, well, I have listened to two of the songs with Carolyn Lee, and they're not nearly as good. They're more past, okay. they're more pastiche, and there's more energy to the uh, Ashman version. And then like you even listen to the versions that got on Broadway compared to what's now licensed, and the licensed version I would argue is like. 95% a super solid score, save for Bob's song, but... Oof, yeah, completely. Yeah. And the Broadway version is, you know, it's just bigger, it's brassier, it's not quite as compact, but they're, even the stuff that's not quite as good, there's still a lot there. But they do another workshop, a much better version of the show. They do it for the Schubert's, and they do it for David Geffen, and they see the workshop, and they go, no thank you. And so now they're scrambling, and they finally get two producers. One is... Uh, Richard Kagan, who's an insurance salesman, and Sidney Schlenker, who's a Texan entrepreneur. And they both had produced stuff before, but never anything huge. The only major thing that Schlechner had to his name as a producer was the original production of Joseph. Everything else that both of them had produced were total flops. But they come in and yeah, and they come in and the reason why they get to be producers on this is because they can get the money raised for Smile, no problem. Uh, while they're raising the money, you know, Hamlish is doing investor uh, auditions and then doing uh, uh, auditions for ticket buyers, you know, like uh, ticket 
group buyers, you know, the yeah. uh, people who buy for like giant parties and events and whatnot. And while that's all ha- happening, Ashman is working on the filming of Little Shop because Little Shop is filming the entire summer of 1985. And Smile goes out of town, I think, the summer of 86. Yeah, summer of 86. Oh, also, I just want to say this thing while we keep going, and you'll know what I'm talking about. We'll get into it. Uh, I hate Diane Sawyer, Allie Gordon. Yeah. She's mean. She's mean. Isn't it weird when you, like, look back on things and you're like, hey, are you kind of being an ass right now? Because, like, it's it's one of those things that only comes with time. But, like, Diane Sawyer was kind of being an ass right now. She was being a super ass. And it's not just my love of smile that makes me say this. You watched – so, for anyone who's wondering – Diane Sawyer did a segment on Smile for 60 minutes uh, back in 1986, not 85 to 86, like pretty much was following it from the Ashman Hamlish workshop that lost Geffen and the Schuberts. Right. All the way through, through them in uh, Baltimore when they did their out of town tryouts, essentially. Yeah. Like right up. And it aired the night before they opened. And to say that Diane Sawyer's view of, of the out of town tryout and all of that is like in intensely judgmental and negative is an understatement because there are there are moments when you see something that is that looks good or even promising or someone says something that's like positive and then she spins it so like one of my main examples is hamlish is doing these auditions for ticket buyers and he has like three young women from the show singing a bunch of the score for like hundreds of people and everyone seems to be enjoying it yeah there's even like a cutaway with like an old woman who's like it's delightful i can't wait to bring my friends because i i, I they're such talented young women like and what, there's like what positive happens, feedback yeah what happens is like they they do talking heads and everyone has something positive a lot of people are like oh it has a lot of promise there i can't wait to see what they do with it i i'm gonna buy up a bunch of it i think this is just a we need and someone says oh i love the girls and then the fourth person goes it's cute and then that's where diane sawyer zooms in and goes but cute might not be good enough i'm like go fuck yourself diane sawyer i know it's like all these like things that have recently gone like re-viral of um uh barbara walters interviewing like people like um whitney houston and uh Mm. like uh uh, britney spears and stuff that like we look back on it now and you're like damn get off their dick you're being kind of an asshole right now like can you just like leave them alone you're asking them weird questions they're trying to get the scoop they're trying to get the story they're trying to get the viewers and i get that but also like be a human being and and (laughs) they go fucking out of town to baltimore where they make you know baltimore actually was ended up being disastrous for them just because of the changes they made but they didn't get bad reviews they actually got a couple of raves and 60 minutes shows them at the opening night party you see young jody benson in like her texan pageantry best holding the hands in like a prayer circle with the girls while they wait for the reviews right and then somebody gets on stage and reads a rave like a rave review yeah, a rave review. And then Diane Sawyer goes, not all the reviews were that positive. Some were pretty negative. They've got a lot of work to do. And I'm like, go fuck yourself. They're, I they're think you trying. should get Diane on the pod and you can you can drill her about why she didn't like Smile. Also, by the way, this 60 Minutes thing is on YouTube because you sent it to me and I would highly recommend people go watch it. It's very interesting. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I found extremely interesting is that Marvin Hamlish, like, outwardly is trashing the Schubert organization because he's like, I made these guys millions of dollars. I have the biggest hit on Broadway. And then I did another pretty good hit for them after. And here they are being like, we just don't believe in it. And like, I I really like thought it was interesting that like, um, I don't know. I feel like nowadays people have to be a little more careful about what they say and where they say it because just like things live in such perpetuity and can be like retweeted out of weird context and things like that. And so like, I thought it was sort of unusual 
albeit extremely fair, for him to be voicing these frustrations yeah. on national television and on, on a 60 Minutes thing. Like, I was like, damn, dude, I really feel you on this. And, like, I was like... I was glad to see his unfiltered response to the situation as opposed to like the publicity's spin of his response to the situation. Do you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. I'm a hundred percent agreement with you on that. And I mean, Marvin Hamlish was mostly a dick and I will mention a little bit more how his dickishness came out when the show opened on Broadway, but he's not wrong. And what he kind of, I don't know if he says these exact words, but this is what I got from it is when he said that, you know, I made them all this money. I've had two hits. You know, one is, you know, still running and like a sensation. The other one ran for two and a half years, ran all over the country, ran across the uh, the globe. And then I have this one, which is like my passion project, which, yes, you know, we're not there yet, but there is promise here for them to say we don't believe in it is them saying like they don't believe in him. They don't believe that he can get it done. That is essentially what he's saying. And it's like a very fair response to the situation which is just being like oh I thought you believed in me as a person but you only believe in me as a moneymaker and now that you have even the slightest whiff of doubt you Mm -hmm. have like thrown my ability to the curb because all you can see is like the spreadsheet that will have the you know profits at the end of it uh I just thought it was I don't know I I appreciate when you can hear creatives talk about this and like in an unfiltered way and even in like the heat of the moment like you know his perspective may have changed if we talked to him today and it's like hey what's your what's your perspective on smile like it might be different because I might be softened by time but like I am sort of interested in like the it's so hard to make a Broadway musical it's so hard to make art and like there are a lot of huge emotions associated with it and um I think the more that people see it the like the more truthful it will be to know how hard it is to go see like what that is a fucking miracle that anything's on on Broadway at all do you know what I mean Mm -hmm. And a greater miracle if something works. Like it's Exactly. And I think because if you know how hard it is, it actually makes criticism more appreciated too. Because if something isn't great and somebody can like put their finger on why, you're like, hey, thank you. Thank you for sort of demystifying or helping me to parse like what I didn't like about it or what didn't like work for me about that. Even though I acknowledge it's a fucking miracle that it's even running at all. Like I, I think it's like a very healthy way to look at theater and people's response to it in general as opposed to just being like it was crazy the stage moved yeah <laughs> it's well yeah we're we are at a place now with feedback in the community where it's all just overwhelmingly positive and it's not helpful in any way because people can't artists can't get better if they aren't given constructive criticism you and they they can't get better if you give them destructive criticism and there was a time i talked about this i think either i think in candy i can't remember one of my past episodes i talked about how like you read old reviews from the golden age through the 60s and the negative reviews aren't ever actually helpful because these critics had to write their reviews in six hours you know they get out of open night they had to drill it out and if they didn't like it it was more about an exercise for them and their bitchiness. So you'd have, you know, Walter Kerr being like, flop, garbage, trash, drag her to filth, burn her alive. <laughs> and you never actually about like, here's why like this song doesn't work or why like the intentions of the show are correct, but like maybe this story just doesn't sing or, or you know, blah, blah, blah. And unfortunately, John Simon lived for so long that we still had his trash reviews. But I think now 
negative reviews have actually gotten better because they have had more of that constructive feedback where it's like, this is why I don't like this or why this doesn't work. Uh, you know, love him or hate him. And I don't really care for him all that much now that he's in the times, but Jesse Green, when he writes a negative review, he's pretty clear about what it is that he didn't think worked. And I think that is very fair, whether you agree with him or not. Uh, I don't always agree with his taste, but I mean, like his, his music man review is incredibly fair and he lays out why he found it underwhelming. Yes. And I like, I really thought that was a very, I thought that was a very, very fair review. Like even if it's not nice, which it, it isn't, it isn't, unnice for the sake of being unnice Mm -hmm. and it also has exactly what i was saying of like that that acknowledgement of the fact that it's a miracle that we can get all these people in the same place at the same time doing a show that we highly regard as a classic do you know what i mean like it has all the acknowledgement of like hey it's incredible that we've done this it's incredible that we have like a huge star in this show that's like kind of unkillable because like the material is so bulletproof there are definitely things that don't age as well but overall like what can you say you can't it's pretty insane to try and say the music man is a quote-unquote not good musical it is so with that acknowledgement here's why this production isn't very good like that's very i feel like i've lost the plot here but like i'm just saying like I, i i like when there is an acknowledgement that to even make theater is is a near impossibility. So yeah. a, a a criticism isn't existing to tear it down and isn't existing to say like garbage flop. They didn't even think about this. It's like obviously a lot of people thought about it very hard for a very long time, which is my it's my responsibility to tell you this doesn't work. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It also makes it all the more fascinating to me that Paradise Square took 10 15 years to come to Broadway. I'm like none of this was discussed or was discussed and thrown away in these last 15 years. Anyway, um, speaking of flop garbage trash, but that's <laughs> bringing it back to the part we were talking about. That's sort of what Marvin Hamlish is getting at with the response to that workshop from the Schubert's and, and David Geffen. He's like, if you don't think things work, like tell us why we can make it better. We're good at what we do. And this is a good idea for a musical. We know it is. So like, tell us what you think isn't working. We'll do it. But they just wouldn't even go that far of saying, like, right. you know, we we believe in you and that you can make it better. We hear stories all the time from the 50s, 60s, 70s of, you know, musicals going out of town and just totally bombing. And then because production had faith in the creative team, they made it work. You know, like Annie was a disaster at Goodspeed. And then they figured it out between Goodspeed and DC. They made it even better at DC, came to Broadway, was this huge hit. Forum, you know, any other producer would have closed it. But Hal Prince was like, no, this works. We just There's something missing. And then they figured it yep. out because um, yeah. he believed in the team and he brought in an outside perspective. And it's a shame that the Schubert's and David Geffen didn't have that with Hamlish and Ashman. But two producers did believe in them. They go to Baltimore where they actually make the show worse. And this is because, as I said, it's the 80s. It's the more is more mentality of producing. It's the everything needs to be heartfelt because Les Mis is about to come on to Broadway. You know, Les Mis is this huge hit in London. Everyone has the recording. It's trying out in D.C. while Smile is going back into rehearsals for Broadway. And everyone's like, it's uplifting. It's a movement. It's a revolution. So like, okay, got it, got it. People really like heart right now. We need heart in our musicals. This We're doing a dark satirical comedy right now. Uh, add more heart. Uh, add more flash uh the producers apparently really leaned on ashman and hamlish to give jody benson more to do because they really thought she was going to be like the next big thing and in a weird way she ended up being the next big thing but not in the way they thought 
and they get to Broadway, and the reviews are mostly negative. Frank Richards' review is interesting. He's like, listen, Ashman has written some amazing lyrics. He's like, these might be my favorite lyrics in a while. Uh, he's like, Hamlish has actually written some really good music, but he's like, unfortunately, it does start to peter out in ingenuity as the show continues, which I disagree with. It's just that there become more pageant numbers, which thus means more pastiche numbers, which Correct. I think, which I, which I think Hamlish does extraordinarily well. Um, it works extremely well on stage. It's not like if it came up on my shuffle, I would skip it. That's no. I feel like a fair a fair thing to say of just being like in those later numbers that are meant to sound like a song written for a pageant. I would not listen yeah. to it out of context, but in context, it's extremely uh, useful. It works. Yeah, it all the show also got dinged a lot of the time for not having a lot of concrete like uh, separate songs. It had a lot of musical sequences, which I. Th- think is a really stupid criticism Uh, yeah also we like i feel like we've outgrown that criticism like now we like love that we love shows that like move 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 no applause break let's keep going yeah yeah Um, well because like it is interesting that that like i don't think that the show is worse because they added heart because i think the parts that work work extremely well and i do feel for doria and i do love all of her little things that pop up in other group numbers like in the opening of act two she has another part where she's like robin i'm not gonna win this so like you have to go out it's basically like go out there and do it for me yeah um it's like the best music in the whole show and it's not even a song it's just like her little tiny part of it but it's like amazing lyrics and it's so great home in my room there's a wall full of pictures beautiful girls girls who win you'll never know how i've longed to be one of In my room, there's a drawer full of clippings, contests I'll never be in. Magic I won't be a part of, except through you. So turn to the mirror. And like, I don't know, I think I do think you feel for them as a duo. Like, I do think that that there isn't a lot of there's nothing too sardonic about the two of them as characters and I do think you are meant to genuinely root for them and care about them and that the part that is allowed to be made fun of is the concept of a pageant and why we care about them at all and like don't get me wrong though Ali like the the heart thing I'm talking about it's not the Robin Doria stuff that stuff is is golden they added more heart to the brenda bob stuff they added Boo. yeah i know and they <laughs> the, the whole brenda bob stuff is really changes from broadway to samuel french and then also like it just when you have too much heart in smile the stuff that is more sardonic comes off weird because it just it becomes sort of the dichotomy of the earnestness and the satire clash sometimes and i think the balance is blended a lot better in the Samuel French version, because there is still the heart of Doria and Robin, but they take away the heart from a lot of other characters. So the show is much more a satire and Robin and Doria are the heart that make it bearable because if there's no human on stage, like audiences will just go, why am I rooting for, why am I watching this at all? I need something to connect to. I can't just watch a commentary the entire time. It's why like no one really does Brecht anymore because it's all just commentary. Do you, do you know that you are the person who showed me Drop Dead Gorgeous for the first time? I did not know that. I was the person we, who showed it to you the first time. We watched it together, I think, at your house or something like that for the first time. That and makes sense. again, you were like, nobody knows this movie. It's amazing. Whatever. And you're right. Uh, it is also unbelievably hard to find to watch now again. 
yeah. um, completely unrelated to this. I watched it again recently because I had to record a different podcast where we were talking about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I feel like it's impossible to compare. It's impossible not to compare Smile to Drop Dead Gorgeous, not just because it's about a pageant, obviously, but because they have this, there is a similar um, attempt here to mm-hmm. care really genuinely about a few of the characters in it while nonetheless maintaining an air of sardonic wit uh, acknowledging how silly this all is acknowledging what kind of human adult really cares about a pageant and how weird those people can be acknowledging the harm it causes to teenage girls that is sort of like put under the veneer of uh, no, she's a well-rounded contributor to the American society. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All of these I, things exist in both pieces of media. Yeah. Um, and similarly, uh, the parts of like Drop Dead Gorgeous that don't quote unquote work anymore are the ones that are like severely punching down and are just like, that character just simply doesn't work anymore. Yeah. Oops. The parts that still do work are still biting do you know what I mean it still has something to like say for example mm-hmm. I had like an argument on this podcast where we were talking about the um the um oh god what song does she sing when they when they bring out the last winner and she's so sick from being anorexic that she, they oh don't cry out loud and she's don't cry out loud yeah so like they were like is this do we think this does this make your teeth grind are we a little like what do we think about this and I was like okay I'm gonna fight pretty hard for we are not punching down on the poor girl in the chair. We are punching down on the organization that has driven her to these levels. And then knowing that she's sick and unwell, instead of saying, we should find something else to do besides having our past winner come back, are so stuck in their obsessive, like, like it has to be the way we always do it. Mm-hmm. They force her to come back and do the number in a wheelchair and everyone acts like it's all normal. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. no, I, I don't think it's oh, her. I've always, she is not I've the punching bag. I've always thought that was completely yeah. and so like i fully i'm on i'm on the team of like while other parts of this movie have not aged super well like that is not one of those things like i think that that character is not a punching down on people who are suffering from you know eating disorders and mental illnesses yeah. it's like it's punching down on the people who willfully give these things to people and then say look all the good we did and like smile exceeds in in those ways succeed smile like smile succeeds i said exceeds smile succeeds in those ways also Drop Dead Gorgeous is, it shares a lot of DNA with Smile, but Drop Dead Gorgeous uh, is different because bitches die in Drop Dead Gorgeous. Like, there's there's an explosion. Like, just, there's, a, like, it goes it goes even further than Smile ever would. Smile, oh, I think. Oh, definitely. Smile is, like, if Drop Dead Gorgeous and Delection had a baby because it's more about yes. the politics of it. Whereas, I think what they share in terms of the satirical elements of a beauty pageant is the idea of how far people will go to put on a show and that is i think where the joke has comes from as you were saying with the don't cry out loud wheelchair bit even you know denise richards dancing around with jesus on the cross and can't take my eyes off of you and smile is similar but in a little more i don't want to i'll say realistic more in a realistic way uh in the confines of actual yeah, the, show the, business. The talents are less outrageous. The characters are less outrageous. But like in a similar way, it, it is really biting about what the use of a pageant even is. Mm-hmm. Like even though Doria is like one of our like heart characters, let's say, um, when she's telling Robin like how she got 
to even winning her thing and like getting here and getting this far she's like oh yeah like a horny old dentist got like 15 girls in his office and I won and you're like but like you know to her she's like whatever I just like I did it I like you know like it needed to be done and it got done now I'm here and so someday I'll go to Disney World and you're like okay yeah well you know what I mean like that's I think the thing about Smile the show and the movie no the movie doesn't really do this the show grapples with a bit more the idea of agency and uh you know, being in control of yourself and your narratives. Like, Doria with the dentist thing. Yeah, it's, it's not dentist. Um, uh, skin doctor, dermatologist. It's, oh, uh, I think it might have been dentist in the movie. That's no, why it's, no that's it's, why I it's, um, like it's, it's a dermatologist because it's it's Miss Teenage Complexion. And yeah. the, the joke is yeah. that he's a horny do- skin doctor. He rented out a ballroom and ha- made up this fake title so he could watch a bunch of 16, 17 year old girls in bathing suits. And then he crowned Miss Teenage Complexion. And I think the show, they made a, a small little musical moment of it in on Broadway, but I think they just cut the whole thing when they got to Stanley French. I can't remember. But in the movie, they acknowledge it. Robin's like, Jesus Christ, like, wasn't that awful? And Tori's like, no, I got 200 bucks and got a wart removed. It was great. Uh, yeah, exactly. And now I'm here. Yeah, and like, and, like, ne- and then soon I'll be someplace better. And then soon I'll be someplace even better than that. Like, yeah. yeah. And the show, the having Robin, who is, you know, a novice to all of it, is a great device. Because you do need a novice to come in and ask the questions that the audience has. So we learn all about how pageants work and all the tactics and whatnot. And I think the show actually does a better job with Robin than the movie does. The movie Robin is just sort of a bit of a dum-dum. And in the show, they make her a bit more of a wet blanket. But if you play the role right, she's a wet blanket who's trying to do it correctly. She just has no idea what it is that she's doing. If you watch clips of Anna Marie Bobby doing it on Broadway, she's trying really hard to go against the idea of Robin being a killjoy. Like her Robin is really trying to act like the rest of these girls. But her Robin is also kind of had arrested development from the fact that she her father died when she was very younger mother definitely keeps her close by has you know infantilized her for the longest time the i think the costume design on broadway like robin showing up in an oversized cardigan with bows while the rest of these girls are wearing skirts above the knee because it's 1986 right or 1985 1986 is a good uh visual it because robin's arc in the show is growing up a bit and and learning that you know that she's capable of making shitty decisions for shitty reasons and to try to do better in the future. Like she's not better than anybody else. She just can only try to work harder, but. And also like, there's a very interesting thing that I probably like didn't understand as much when I was like an actual teenager reading this, but like now kind of strikes me is like uh, there's a a subplot of the Doria and Robin relationship where Doria is like, listen, these judges love adversity. If you can have something to talk about that like sets you apart or is memorable or makes you sympathetic, it is stupid for you not to use it. You have to use it. It's insane that you won't mention that your dad is dead. And she's like, but it didn't really like affect me. Like he, I was like three years old. I don't remember him. Usually what it inspires when I tell people my dad is dead is that they feel sorry for me. But like I don't feel anything about it. Mm. And there's like a long time that she resents even the implication that it'd be worth it. Why does it matter? Shouldn't I just like play my instrument and get my money from being talented and I'll answer the questions right because I'm smart. And then like by the end, like when she gets hungrier for winning, she's like, okay, like I guess I do have to do what I have to do. Yeah. And like it starts to be like, okay, fine. I'll like, I'll use the sob story, which is similar to Doria being like, 
whatever. He was a horny skin doctor. Doesn't doesn't matter to me. I'm here now. Like, come on. Like, you have to do what yeah. you got to do. Like, there's a lot of like the- these things that drive these young women to have agency over their lives but maybe in ways that like are kind of uncomfortable like maybe not like you know super like a like a girl power moment do you know what I mean like yeah well it's it's not like uh we all banded together and we stuck up to the man it's like oh you just are realizing life sucks and you have a little tiny fingers in the grappling of of the mountainside that is what it means to be a a 17 year old girl facing the rest of your life as a woman do you know what I'm saying sure I mean I've never been a 17 year old girl but I knew all of you but (laughs) <laughs> the Doria Robin relationship, I think, is really important to the show because for a show that's about women competing, having them and their friendship not really be competitive allows the show to then show the dark underside of the rest of the pageant and not get criticized for being anti-women or like women can't ever like work together in any ways, if that makes sense. So like the the Robin Doria situation that we're talking about, like they show up day one, as you said before, Doria's the vet she's done this forever she's been obsessed for years comes from a bad home life uh you know mom's been remarried a bunch clearly you know whoever she's married to now they don't care about her they have that great moment in the opening number where doria's where robin is saying goodbye to her mom and hugging her and you see doria shout off stage like i'm leaving anyone want to say bye to me no okay yeah (laughs) um you know and which so doria puts a lot into the pageants because it gives her a sense of self-worth and robin fell into this by accident you know a lot of people they do answer the question of why robin is there because i feel like with a character like robin the you know the beautiful without trying to be which is the trope we all hate but we know what ashman means when he says that in the character description um you know she's a she's a very uh natural human being not just like in terms of looks but she just she's not really she's not present she doesn't present herself she just is and she does the pageant thing because a teacher uh, submitted her in the local pageant because she's like, you're pretty and you're incredibly smart. You have a 4.0 GPA. You play the flute. You volunteer at a nursing home. You have a job. You, you know, it's just you and your mom. Like you, you could win this thing hands down. You're, you're a model young girl. Cause the whole thing about the pageant is supposed to be showing the community, like look at these young women that we raise in America, they are the future and aren't we doing a good job by by creating these young girls and they're setting an example for the future. It's not a beauty pageant. However, swimsuit is a part of it. You know, looks exactly. and present There's a really young. good part in the movie that I actually can't remember if it sort of translates to the show, but I, I don't think it does. But like uh, in the movie, um, uh, Brenda, who was a former teen american miss when she's instructing to the uh judges and like the panel of people like what they should be looking out for she specifically says like vote for the kind of girl you would be proud to call your daughter or your granddaughter which is like the platonic ideal of what would be correct about a a beauty pageant Mm -hmm. but then also later and again this is a moment of satire but like the the son who's a creep we haven't even gotten into that yet mm-hmm. uh goes to his dad and is like hey are there a lot of like tubby girls in the pageant and the dad's like smiling like no son there isn't yeah <laughs> it's like right because it has nothing to do with voting for who you would be proud to call your daughter or your granddaughter it's about a lot of other things that you won't say yeah. well, <laughs> like, the, the, the- it just it does a really good job like showing that like it's i keep coming back to the same point but it's like it's not the girl's fault that they have to compete in this way. It's the fault of 
the expectations of uh decades upon decades upon decades of like what we conceive of as womanhood do you know what i mean well and and so that is the constant struggle that really robin is the one who represents it best of you know do you want to be true to yourself or do you want to win and there are two very different things and it takes a certain kind of uh, sacrifice to win and then on top of that it's just you know what does winning even mean you win prize money you get a title you then go off to the nationals you don't even like this this is just the state version like you're not yeah, this isn't even miss america yeah yeah you're you are a you are this there's a national version of this so if you win this one you have to go on to the next one and then you know you only have that title for a year and then you have to give it up so you know for as we said doria it's less about the prize money more it's just about self-worth she's always enrolling in pageants robin I don't think she, she only really wants it for the scholarship money and to also kind of like do the teacher proud who submitted her. And then when it becomes a possibility that she could win, because the way that the pageant works is there is preliminary night where there are three categories. There's um, it's like education, talent and uh, the Is interview. it called like Vim and Vigor or something like that? Vim and Vigor. Yeah. Uh, which I think comes from the interviews that they do. Right. Is that right? Yeah. And, I think so, yeah. Yeah, and there are five finalists that get announced the night of the actual pageant, three of whom are, you know, more often than not chosen from preliminary night. So education ends up going to Robin, Vim and Vigor goes to Sandra K. McAfee, and talent goes to Maria Gonzalez. And Doria really thought talent was her only shot because she's got terrible grades. I love the line she goes, if they don't like me taking my clothes off, it's a, you know, it's easy to, to know that they're going to hate my grades. And yeah. so Robin is like, uh, Doria is like, I have no shot anymore. There are two other slots. I can't, I'm not going to get it. And so she's like, Doria, uh, Robin, you are my, my shot, which is with, you know, where tomorrow night until tomorrow night comes in. And then Doria is, you know, Robin, you're special, Robin, you're sparkle, do it for me. And then what ends up happening is Doria does end up making it into the final five, which becomes a final four, which we will get into with Maria Gonzalez of it all. And so Robin and Doria end up sort of competing again and Doria does what she does best. She knows how to say the right things. She says, you know, you say blanket terms that they can sort of project themselves onto. It's what gets Sandra K. McAfee the crown in the end. Spoiler alert, Sandra K. McAfee wins. And that's when Robin uses her dead dad during In Our Hands, where she's like, I'm so close I can taste it. I'll go. I'll push one over the edge. Doria keeps telling me to use orphan points. Um, yes. And there's, there's a great line in the show that's – not in the Samuel French version. If I were to direct the show, I would include it, which is when they are in their dorms together for the first time and Robin mentions her dead father. And Doria says, oh my God, you you could really use that to your advantage. Being a 4.0 student and getting there without a dad helping you. And there's a beat and Robin goes, you really think things like having a dead dad count up here? And... <laughs> And then Doria. That line's not in the bra- that's not that's not in the Samuel French version. I remember saying that. Um, I feel well. Doria says it could help you, and then there's a speech like, "Oh God, is that terrible to say?" And Robin's like, "I oh, guess yeah. not." Robin's yeah, like, "I guess right, not." I don't right. remember him much, but in the show on Broadway, Doria just says it could help you, and then Robin says, "You really think things like having a dead dead count up here?" And then and then Doria says, "Everything counts up here," and it's. I think it's so important to have that line in there just to sort of show. Yeah, me too. Especially because like it, it does set up. We just keep like we talk. We keep talking about it like it's a fucking like Marvel movie surprise in the back half of the credits. The we keep calling it the Maria Gonzalez of it all. Yeah. But like there is a there's a whole thing of just like what can you use? What what is yours? 
what makes you special Mm -hmm. and like there's a line that sean says well well, so sean is talking with um sean is like the the semi-villain of the piece i suppose she's la jolla's young american uh, miss yes and she is just she's racist like she uh is talking about how like there's been like two black miss americas three if you count vanessa (laughs) which is already like whoa oh actually sorry ali 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 so i sent ali um, the video bootleg of the show, as well as soundboard of the show, so she could hear like clearly the text of it all. Because she's Ali had never heard the Broadway version. I wish I had a way to send you the soundboard of the show at its final preview. We might we might have talked about this at one point because the final Broadway preview is filled to the roof with homosexuals who are like there for Howard Ashman's big Broadway debut. And when I tell you that they get every single joke that he makes. Like, when Sean says there have been two Black Miss Americas, if you count Vanessa, the fags in the mezzanine lose it. Um, right. I mean, like, and it is a funny line. And it is, like, such an amazing encapsulation of people who think that way. Like, mm-hmm. she is an extremely realistic character, whether you like it or not. And, like, her last line, she, like, she's, like, talking to her people and she's being, like, Maria's going to win this because she's talented and all that stuff. And she gets all the Mexican points. God, I wish I was Jewish or disadvantaged or something. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny. It is. It's, really like, funny. really, really funny. Well, okay, so, and it's true. I mean, and we talk about this now with Broadway, you know, something that I've been told a lot, which no one will actually say in print or out loud. And I'm, I'm not going to say who said this to me because it was a few people. But a lot of people are saying, like, with Broadway right now, it's it's never been easier to get a job if you are not white because Broadway is just looking for that so much. And it's about using that to your advantage in a very pageant kind of way that opens up another conversation of how Broadway doesn't actually understand what diversity means they're like oh it's a checklist <laughs> of, of ethnicities right we we have two of this one of this I'm like no no it's not just that and on top of that like there's more, right there's also and it's like no 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 it's really cool because all of the lines and all of the songs and the characters exactly the same so they are not informed in any way shape or form by their background but here's somebody else doing the role and it's yeah. like hmm I don't know if that's it's not hashtag empowering. It's not that empowering. It's also, you know, Broadway goes, oh, diversity. So just um, having more black actors, right? And I'm like, no, there are other ethnicities, sweetie, like many more. And then on top of that, it's also size, vocal type, age, uh, ability. Yeah, you know, truly. It's, just, it's a much larger conversation that uh, requires longer process. Point is, point is, point is. Those kind of things being said is part of the smile of it all where it's, you know, use what you got, know that, you know, you have to be special in some kind of way. And Sean sort of says the thing that is preempting Broadway today, where she says ethnic is in right now, which is so stupid to say, but it's also kind of true at the same time. And she just says it in just such a shallow, callous way that you have to laugh because you also have to remember this bitch is 17, most likely smoking in the teacher's lounge. That's why it's so funny. Exactly, because, like, she's she's also, like, set up as being sort of, like, um, ahead of the rest of the pack, sort of, like, I don't know if I'm going to say even, like, um, like mature in a way, but just, like, she, in the opening number, everyone else is like, where are my bows, my barrettes? I, Mom, this, this leotard makes me look fat, and she's looking for her diaphragm, mm-hmm. and she's like, oh, I should have never gotten off the pill. Like, this girl is is running with an older crowd, yeah. I think. Well, and so, like, it's not surprising to me that, like, her... Um, her perspective of the world has been also informed by some people who probably think the way that she has been like taught to parrot of just being like, Oh, she doesn't deserve it. She's just 
she's just doing something different. Oh, yeah. she doesn't deserve it. She's just Mexican, and that's cool. You know what I mean? Like, whatever. Well, okay, so because you brought up that line, we also – I want to talk about certain songs as well because, my God, am I obsessed with so many of these lyrics. But a great example of when the show changed from Broadway to Samuel French is the opening number, which is called Typical High School Senior. And originally, the show opened with Robin packing her bags and reading the acceptance letter for the pageant and – you know, singing like, who is she? Who's this girl? Who is she? Who is she? Which they thankfully cut. And a bunch of girls come on stage and they start to sing. She's a typical high school senior. And it's all listing all the things that a young American miss should do. And then they go into the, she's going to Santa Rosa and Robin hugs her mom and her mom's like, I'll miss you. Don't change while you're there. And then the song ends. And when they got to Samuel French, they cut that whole beginning part with Robin and they just have, um, the head of the pageant, I forget his name, but no, douchey older white dude. And he says, you know, yeah, what is a young American miss? And they have these girls in the video going like, gosh, just real average, totally ordinary, you know? And then listing all these things that are supposed to be like poster child, all American girl. She's a typical high school senior. She is thoughtful and bright and clean. She is caring and kind. She reads books to the blind. She's no older than 17. And she usually works on earbooks while maintaining a 3.0. She's attractive and smart with an outgoing heart and a visible youthful glow. She is eager to please. Yes, in summary, she's the most typical girl. You know. But, the, <laughs> but then the lyrics start to have a turn where then the girls start to sing to each other. As a typical high school senior. Who puts rum in her coke and frequently smokes but, but not in front of her folks. Which shows the sort of underside, the darker underside of all that. And then we cut to how these girls actually are as they're, as they're getting ready to leave. And these girls are in fucking chaos. And we have Sean. We have a bunch of other girls. We have the girl who has her diaphragm. Might never go off the pill. One girl shouts, where the fuck? Uh, uh, she has style, but her taste is simple. And then one girl shouts, where the fuck is my Ralph Lauren? And <laughs> that is like, that is how I think Ashman found the balance much better in the licensed version of having the heart and the satire combined. Um, and yeah. Because then after all of this craziness, we then cut to Robin having a heartfelt moment with her mom saying goodbye and Doria saying bye to her mom and stepdad and they're not responding. Uh, and then going to the ending of the song. It's a really great balance. So I just wanted to bring up that line since you mentioned uh, the diaphragm, why'd I ever get off the pill? Yeah, I mean, and that's Sean. Like, that's how we are introduced to this character who we will later see is sort of like, everybody wants the same thing, but she is sort of like, operating slash playing on a slightly more like quote-unquote adult level uh-huh. do you know what i'm saying like like i'm not gonna say that like she is the only like she's a bad girl she's the only person who thinks of these things in a racist way like i, I think probably especially like in the movie they show that like a lot of these girls are like very happy to like giggle behind their backs and like you know like look down on other people's achievements just for being like oh you only got that because you're whatever you know what i mean yeah um but like she's the one who's like seeing it in like a manipulative way where it's like oh no she's as smart as I am and so like she's using it like a puzzle and like I resent her for that because like that like that means her life is better than mine do you know what I mean Mm -hmm. like I I feel like she is like seeing she is like being more adult in her like politics of it so what a wonderful time and not just like jealousy so what a wonderful time then to get into the Maria Gonzalez of it all because there are so many things that I think the show improves upon the movie with and things that have actually made the show age better than the movie. And one is Maria Gonzalez, and another is The Photograph. Which, after watching the movie, by the way, were you shocked at how all that went down 
and how different it was and not nearly as uh, good. Yeah. Very much more cringe in the movie. It all sort of, yeah. I will say, like, I actually, like, really, really enjoyed probably the first, like, two-thirds of the movie. Uh, And I felt that the last third, like, really lost me. I felt like it lost a lot of the bite. I felt like it lost a lot of its momentum. I, like, didn't really understand why they had the perspective that they did on a lot of issues. I don't Uh know. Like, the beginning of the movie is so fun. Like, watching all the, like, talent portions and... um. Like there's like a the, the Doria talent is exactly the same as it is in the musical as it but as, as it is in the mu- in the movie uh, in the musical obviously we don't understand what the audience reaction is because we are the audience but like yeah. in the movie it's like a really well shot sequence where she's like basically doing a strip tease but she's like hiding it behind the, like the 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 virtues of inner beauty and she's telling a story about like going to the library and reading a book but like as she's doing it she's like I stripped off my hat and then she's just like taking off yeah. all her clothes and it like cuts to people in the audience like nodding and being like yeah finally the co- the clothes are coming off <laughs> do you know yeah. what you and, and, you, and, and so you're and, like oh there's the bite and dirty middle aged men who are in the orchestra for this uh, because they have like a live band and everything they're they're making crude gestures about her to each other uh because and that i mean that the whole joke of doria's talent and doria is aware of this doria's talent is she wrote a poem about the joys of inner beauty after reading a book at the library and as she does this she takes off all of her clothes and is just wearing like a leotard at the end because she's aware that she's hot and that is what she's doing she's very aware of it and the movie as you said shows people's reactions going like okay here we go lolita jailbait time the show does the exact same thing, although Ashman rewrote a lot of the words so it could actually rhyme. In the movie, it doesn't rhyme. It's just, like, deaf yeah. poetry. <laughs> D- Doria is better at, at writing in the musical than she's in the movie. Yes. Uh, but, I, but I also think that the rhymes help to make it funnier because just r- rhyming put thing, puts things all together in a way uh, that, you know, just random phrases do not. Like, in the movie, she's like sparkly jewels floppy hat they were in so i had them all it's like that you're just i don't know what you're doing girl but yeah so in the movie maria and gonzalez a lot of these girls are really secondary characters doria and robin get the most screen time for sure but i would even argue they are more like major supporting players and what is an ensemble piece and the adults have a lot of time as well uh maria gonzalez is mostly just shown as a kind of annoying contestant who is always spouting about the history of Mexico and her talent is uh, flaming batons, I think, where she talks about one is America, one is Mexico and how like they become friends, right? Isn't that what it is? Yeah, it was sort of it was sort of about like the American dream and how it's achievable for everybody. Yes. And and then fire. <laughs> and and when she's meeting with the judges, you know, when they meet with the elk, she goes, "You've been so nice enough to feed us. I would like to feed you with my homemade guacamole dip." And then when she's going in for her interview, uh Brenda's like, "Oh, is that your homemade guacamole?" "See." Si. "Oh, the same ones that you brought to the elks?" "See." Si. "And the and the badgers?" "See." Si. "And the so and so's?" "See." Si. Okay, Maria, go in. Like you know that Maria this Maria's not doing this out of the goodness of her heart. It's her gimmick, right? It's it's right. I I I'm I'm wholesome in my own way, but because I am uh Mexican or come from Mexican descendancy, I am using that to my advantage as well as the thing that makes me special. And then the movie, the girls are just like, oh, she's kind of annoying. So they do something to her uh batons. I think they fill them up with more powder so they explode. Is that what it is? Yeah. It just doesn't – like, they all – it, like, seems like it's going to be dangerous, and then, like, everyone in the audience screams and gets scared, but everything's, like, fine. Yeah, and then nothing happens after that. And then – so, also in the movie, 
the pageant coordinator, Brenda, is married to a dude who's a wet blanket. He's the one that we were talking about with the chicken bud and not wanting and be, wanting to kill himself because he's going to age out of fraternity. And then there's Big Bob, played by Henry Fonda. No, not Henry Fonda, Bruce Dern, who has a car company. He's got this little son, little Bob, and he's like, I'm going to make him just like me. And he's an all-American boy. Little does he know his son's a total creep who's wanting to take pictures of the girls in various states of undress. The show streamlines this and just makes Brenda and Bob married. And little Bob is their son. And uh, It's a good change. It is a, it is oh, a good change. My cat is Brenda becomes... Yeah. Leslie, the- you are gay. Ellie's <laughs> <laughs> cat is back. But so... In the movie, as in the show, little Bob has a camera and he's going to take pictures of the girls in various states of undress. In the movie, this doesn't really go anywhere. It's been a minute since I've watched it, uh, but I think Bob eventually finds out about it. Yes? Yes. 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 The, the kids get caught. The kids get caught. but the And then it becomes like a, a hot potato of – he's got like one photo. Because, yeah, he gets caught by, by the girls, doesn't he? Little Bob? Yes. Yeah. In the movie, he gets caught by the girls. Uh, it's a photo of Melanie Griffith – uh, that we don't ever see until the very end because it's a game of hot potato of, like, who has the photo? This photo is dirty, whatever. And then it ends up being, like, a trucker ends up getting it through a game of telephone. And the last shot is him in his in his truck with a topless Melanie Griffith in his rearview mirror. Um, the show, Howard Ashman, God fucking bless him, recognized two things. He said, Maria Gonzalez is the only contestant of color in this pageant. She has to be aware that she is. She has to know that she has to work harder, and she has to look around and go, this is 1986 California, and I am Mexican. The only thing these judges know of Latin culture is West Side Story and Saludos Amigos. I could be true to my— I mean, even in her opening song, she's like, every sign that you see on the highway, Taco Bell, which, like, isn't even Mexican food, like, ostensibly. No, but it's what the judges know. She's just, like, fully playing into the white person stereotype, just being like, I will give you what you want. Absolutely, and she's rewarded for it. It's like what I'm saying about, like, um— it's it's everybody ugh, not to like go too far back to like a point I was saying of just being like Robin deciding okay fine I'll tell the story about my dad but I'm doing it on my fucking terms because like I know I want something and like I might I might not like agree with the necessary like the need to put my trauma on on display to get to get sympathy points but like if you're telling me this is how I win maybe I want to win like I, I the show is like the show, I think, is successful because it acknowledges that a pageant is not necessarily a particularly feminist thing, but it still gives these women enough agency within it to show them in a sort of, in a way that I feel is like sort of shockingly progressively feminist for the time. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, sometimes surviving and doing what needs to be done on my terms, even though I am fully playing a man's game and I like, there's no way to like win your man's game. This is how I win to the best of my ability. And this is how I like take control of like what I've got and like what, what I can use in my arsenal. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think with Maria, it, it, if Maria didn't win talent, all this, all of our points would be going down the drain, but she wins talent. She says, I could either be true to myself and my heritage and like really honor what I come from or I could win so let me do this really stereotypical cooking musical demonstration and she wins talent and she is her her point of view on all this is justified with these white judges awarding her uh and then giving you know Sandra K. McAfee Vim and Vigor for giving the most middle-of-the-road answers during her interview like they ask her right in her interview what do you think of the of the women's lib movement and she's like well in some ways I think it's really good 
And in some ways, I think it's really bad. I think we all believe in equality, but is some is too much equality a good thing? Like, she never actually answers the question. And that is why she wins in the end. She's just so middle of the road. Um, I also love... Sorry. We're also... We're going all over the place. But uh, I love when Robin is interviewed. And they go, Robin, you have a 4.0 grade point average. You are in band you volunteer at the ho- at the senior citizen center and you have a part-time job at neiman marcus do you find juggling all of that difficult and rama goes of course and then there's the longest yeah. pause as the judges are like not the answer we were hoping for like we, they want right they, exactly they want it can be difficult but it's so rewarding man she's like no it fucking it sucks it's really hard uh she's like the fact that i succeed proves that like i'm tired all the time anyway the photograph. Uh, Howard Ashman also watches this movie clearly and is like, that photograph is disgusting and I hate how the movie ends with it as a button with a joke with like a topless Melanie Griffith. He's like, that's not how this should go. He's like, that is a violation of this young girl's body. This is not a joke. And I'm like, God bless you, Howard Ashman. So he combines the two of the Maria Gonzalez of it all with the photograph and he goes, okay, Sean Christensen is going to discover little Bob trying to take a photograph of girls in the bathroom in the act one finale. And she goes, and she has an idea. So little Bob ends up getting a photograph of Maria in the bathroom. And in the opening number of the actual pageant, after Maria has won talent, and she is almost certain to go into the top five, all the girls are singing the song Smile. And they each say a thing that they're uh, that they're smiling about. And I want to talk about that as well with Robin's arc, because it's a good arc. But as they come downstage throughout the song, each one gets a little glamour shot shown on screen behind them and Maria wouldn't you know it is the last girl whose photograph goes up but instead of her smiling Sean has switched out the slide of Maria's headshot with Maria naked in the bathroom and that is enough for anyone to want to get the fuck out of there and like fall apart and Maria runs off stage in tears none of the girls can help her because they are all being told you got to go into your next outfit and uh in the licensed version Ashman has Maria talking to Brenda and Brenda's like we don't know what happened you have to go out there you have to do your talent that's what happens you know the winner of talent has to go out there you're going to be in the top five do this and Maria goes we may not know who did it but you know why they did it and this is on you and then she's like I'm yeah and she's like and I'm out of here and she leaves and she leaves and then to make matters even worse uh uh Wilson Shears comes on backstage and he's like Brenda, I want that girl out of here. How dare she pull a stunt like that? He starts blaming Maria, victim blaming. And Brenda, because it's more important to her to be promoted within the pageant system because she her job is on the line. She says, don't worry, I sent her home. Like, t- immediately starts to spin it. And, like, has no time to defend Maria for the violation of her body. Too much is on the line. So she just immediately goes, yep, absolutely. I sent her home. Don't worry. No, don't worry about it. And Bob is the only one who's like, is this what it's all come to? Like, this is supposed to be about the future and, you know, showing that these girls are prime examples for our community. And we're letting them down. Uh, right. Yeah. It's it's it, it's why, like, Bob is not fun to watch, but he... In addition to Robin and Dory, he's the only one who, like, kind of has a bit of a conscience as well and has a lot of this tumultuous – has all these tumultuous feelings about it. Um, and the marriage he has with Brenda in the show is shown as, like, she's hardened over the years because she didn't actually win 
young American Miss, and this is her chance to win again by being promoted, and they're letting their young son slide, and he's going to become, he's already becoming a predator, and Bob's the one who's realizing how the American dream is flawed and not real. And it's it, it's got a lot to say, and I think it says a lot of it very well. It's a shame that the adult characters are so boring because like I do think that the way with the way that the rewrites are set up they are extremely necessary Mm -hmm. because again like I'm saying if what we are saying is uh, pageants are inherently set up in a way that is like sexist patriarchal racist whatever it is then the girls in the pageant can't be like all bad people because like we have to understand that they are existing within like a framework and they're like trying their best to win their way out of the framework. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, to like, to draw it kind of similarly to like a moment in Drop Dead Gorgeous, which is again, even more sardonic and more biting. But there is a moment where Kirsten Dunst is talking to her mom and her mom is like, you gotta get out of here. Like there's nothing good happens here nothing good will ever happen here look at me as a prime example I know you love me don't try and say you know no you're perfect I know I'm not look at where I am like look at what my life has amounted to mm-hmm. I refuse to let that happen to you you got to go out there and win you got to do whatever you can and like you know obviously this is coming in a moment where she's like fearful for her life and things like that and her mom's like being like say basically saying like you can't give up because this is it. someone's trying to shot. kill you you can't give <laughs> you can't up because someone's trying to blow you up, Kirsten. Get out there and do a pageant. But like that, like in that moment, it is played with earnestness of her just being like, "This is your. I am look. I am watching your shot disappear. Get back. Get back out there and do it. Like, don't let anybody intimidate you. Don't let anybody fuck with you. Go. Go win. Do you know what I mean? And no, that, absolutely. Like, it is necessary for these adult characters to exist because we need somebody like Bob to call it out and be like, wait a minute, I thought you literally told me to vote for a girl who I'd be proud to call my daughter. If this happened to my daughter, I'd be losing my mind. And they're all like, ah, you know, well, meh, we'll have to figure it out later. The show must go on. Do you know what I mean? Like, it is imp- it's important that, like, that moral compass exists. Um, yeah. This is not the most fun anything. as other things to watch. Well, they don't, there's just like, there's sort of like what I would call like manufactured drama of just like, I'm bored, life is weird, my job sucks. I don't know. It's like, it's very, they just like didn't mine for real drama for the adults the way that they did for the kids. And like, again, you really feel for the participants, like all of the Doria stuff is like very, it's, it's very like, subtly done is not quite necessarily the appropriate word but you know what i'm saying like that thing of her just being like but isn't compa- anybody gonna say goodbye to me yeah. like like it's very compassionate you know, it's compassionately she- done yes yeah. that's a great word and it's like it you know even in like disneyland which is about which is about her discontent with her life and how she wants to like go live in a dream world mm-hmm. it's still like the lyrics aren't like i am unhappy i wish i lived someplace else i wish i could be in a world where things were magic like it's just like 
it's like little throwaway lines about like the folks are busy fighting uh-huh. and then like there's like been a lines like joe already left home you're like who's joe we don't know do you know what i mean like and we never will like that's like the brilliance yeah. of howard ashman's writing that like because we live in the real world we can fill in with real world facts and we don't have to like have everything fucking spelled out for us yeah no there's um, there, but, there, like, there's none enough of that details love is given to the adults no there's enough details and uh i think that was actually a really good time to talk about some specific songs we can start right off the bat with disneyland which is the big song that like has had the longest life from this show because it is the most like standalone yeah. go into an audition room and sing it song and you know jody benson was the original doria she's she you know began it this song is i think an exceptional song uh howard ashman was the master of the i want song which is not a term that he coined but it is the term that he made probably most internationally known because Completely. especially with Disney, like he shows up at Disney uh, during this time and gives them a whole lecture rundown of the history of musical theater and how it correlates with the history of Disney. And it's it's so favorable. Like, did you see the um, the yes. Tiny Desk at Home concert with Alan Menken and all the people from Little Shop? Yes. Okay, so I was just talking about this with somebody where I was like. Obviously, the term I want song didn't originate with, like, their tenure at Disney. Uh, obviously, there's we can think back to as long as anything is written, even opera, whatever. And, like, there's still been, like, I want songs. Even songs that go, all I want is a room somewhere. So yeah. it's, not, it's not like they were like, hey, here's an I want song. But most people's first encounter with a musical is Disney. Most per- person's first enco- encounter with the form of a musical is, like, popping in the DVD of Beauty and the Beast. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. And so, like, their version of an I Want song has become sort of inextricable from the modern concept of musicals because most people who are alive to write, create, want to see musicals, like, first saw a musical when their parents were like, oh, shut up, here's Little Mermaid. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. No, absolutely. And And so, like, their pioneering of the I Want song has become the, capital Z, T-H-E-E, I Want song because we're you know we're a new generation and that's our ver- that is what we understand a musical to be well and it also you know ashman didn't create the i want song but he i think he perfected he wrote three perfect i want songs uh two of which are internationally known and then one of which is known in musical theater circles and it's somewhere that's green part of your world and disneyland uh part of your right. world which they uh jokingly called uh somewhere that's wet or somewhere that's dry wet. yeah somewhere that's wet <laughs> which is actually i it's it should be somewhere that's dry because that's what ariel that wants true. but you know it follows very very similar structure to somewhere that's green but it's you know here's my situation here's what doesn't work about it here's what i want it's something over there it's something that is almost attainable but not quite and there's a sadness to all three songs as well like it's not defiant i want it there's a there is a there is a tinge of of loneliness about it, of sadness about it, that makes it so earnest. There's this great thing they do in the when you, when you watch the uh, video of Jody doing it on Broadway, or even like listening to the recording of it on Broadway, which you know it's because it's Jody belts. Jody's a big old belter, and mm-hmm. Hamlish loves to give his women big money notes. And it, the song starts to build in kind of a mania when we get to the bridge of the. Oh, I know you're going to say, the, say trees the trees are paper mache. It's done with mirrors. The magic there Each little bird's full of springs You press a button It sings recorded music In the air They've had the mountain refaced It's only plywood and paste Go on Say it I'll turn around 
And on Broadway, they had the orchestra cut out on that care, which I think is such a, it's, oh, it's just a detail. Yeah, because most people do that. I don't care. Boom. And because Ashman was the director and he and Benson, you know, had a rapport, they really clicked on this. They got, she got what the root of the song was, which is sort of, you know, the the loneliness of it and the, and the um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's the, it's like a, there's a word for sort of head in the sand syndrome, you know, the uh, denial, I suppose. So that I don't care is not meant to be uh, successful. It's it's <laughs> sort of getting down on yourself. So I, lo- I love that whole thing. Like, I don't care. And then it mm-hmm. ends in, in triumph or semi-triumph. Yeah, it's the the details in this song are really what make it so successful because as you said like it's there's the Joe the, the folks were fighting like it's not explaining everything full out. He he doesn't say like Joe had already left home a year ago when Joe was 19 and Joe is my half brother and we have different fathers. Exactly. Like, it, exactly. And yeah. like there are definitely lesser songwriters who are have written a many a song who like feel that if they don't spe- spell out everything uh, there's a fear that the audience will misconstrue what I meant. And so mm-hmm. I won't leave it up to your imagination. I won't leave it up to your intelligence of and, like, knowledge of, like, what happens in the world. I will say specifically, my daddy hit me because he used to fight with my older brother, Joe. So Joe moved out when he was old enough, but I'm too young to leave the house. So mm-hmm. I'm stuck at home. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. it, it's, it's, it takes a sort of confidence as a writer to be like, I trust we're on the same page. Yeah. And then for an audience to go, yes, sir, I've absolutely got you, is like such a magical experience. Like, Oh, yeah. Well, it, it's, it's a- so wonderful and like rewarding. And like, I, I do feel that he, Howard Ashman is like king of like, hey, I filled it in halfway. We all live on the same planet, don't we? Well, That's yeah. Just, he, he, he's a picture. It's what it takes is you have to have all the details on your side and then you just remove, 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 right? It's, it's, building the world around the character and having all the answers it's very uh miyazaki right it's it's you know mm-hmm. it's there's that great interview when he's doing a q a about totoro and they're like so what is totoro and he's like explaining how the forest works in that movie and they're like why didn't you mention any of this in the movie he's like because it wasn't important he's like it's not yeah, a- you don't it doesn't matter how you feel at the end of the movie whether or not you know how the, the forest works like did you feel yeah. something did we all agree that we felt something great like congratulations go home and get a good night's sleep now yeah he's like i gave you enough information about how about the hierarchy of that forest that you know it mattered to the story i'm not gonna have five minutes to go down all the details he's like fill in the blanks use your imagination but like i did do the work i do I like it's like there's a paper somewhere that shows how the how the whole social circle of the forest works. I just didn't include right. it. And I, ha- Ashman very much does the same thing with Doria. Like has all the stuff filled out, and then he's like, "I will use this line here to acknowledge it." And it's important to also remember the, how Disneyland comes about. It's their first night in the dorms, no man's land, as they like to call it. And Doria and Robin are sort of talking about their histories, and Doria talks about all the pageants that she's won and. Uh, she knows every Miss America winner of all time because this is what matters to her. And she says it all started when I watched Miss Disneyland, which is not a title that really exists in case anyone's wondering. 
Oh, no, sorry. Wow. Uh, oh, sorry. Yes, you can't want to be Miss Disneyland. Yeah, you can't want yeah, Miss Disneyland. Yeah, Miss Anaheim or something. Yeah, Miss Anaheim, which I guess, you know, maybe you win if you're going to, you know, local than state pageantry. But uh, she, <laughs> she's like, I'm going to enter Miss Disneyland one day. I'm like, that's not real. But she's like, oh, I can't wait to see it. It's like she thinks it's going to be Magical Hermeka and Robin being Robin is like, well, I've been there and it's kind of tacky but i hope you i hope you like it anyway have a good night yeah uh she's like she's sweet about it too where she's like oh i just like i don't want you to get your hopes up too much because like you know you're basically an adult now and like you know like the birds aren't even real and yeah. that's a lot of like gift shops and stuff like she's not even trying to be like she's not trying to be a dude oh doria you you dumb little fool yeah like she's just a like, she's just sort of like oh yeah i mean like it's kind of like a thing for kids so like i hope you don't get like yeah she's like don't, don't get your hopes up too much yeah she's like don't expect too much you know it's f- she literally says it's it's what you say it's cute uh or it's cute or it's nice in a tacky sort of way but and she mentions how like you know she heard birds singing and she looked up and there were speakers in the trees and that and it creeps robin out and she's like it might creep you out too it creeps a lot of grown people out so you know please don't put all your eggs in this basket yeah yeah uh, uh yeah disneyland is a perfect song it is um what are other songs until you love in this tomorrow show? Tomorrow night, oh, until tomorrow night. Yeah, another until thing- tomorrow night is the act one finale. Mm-hmm. It is phenomenal. It is. It has a very fun uh, one piano note um, motif that just like sort of amps up the anxiety. It's also just like I just like really love to hear a bunch of women singing. I just, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it, who doesn't like hearing a, light, a lot of ladies belting and screaming? Um, and it's like a fun little like character portrait. Just like watching all the girls freaking out. And then, of course, it also has this like lovely moment for Doria with the riff that we love so much. Mm-hmm. Um, it's great. Until Tomorrow Night is an amazing song. It also has. So another thing Ashman was really great at. And unfortunately, he never really got to show it off for Disney. But you, you hear it in all of his musical theater scores. Ashman was like the king of pop culture and was so good at including it in his lyrics. So Until Tomorrow Night and Shine has some of my favorite pop culture lyrics. Uh, one of my favorites is... So it also, like, the other thing about Smile and something that Frank Rich uh, noticed in his review is, like, it's also a love letter to Broadway in the sense that it it uses so many shows that came before it as reference so like the way they used the sinks in the bathroom is very similar to how they originally used the bathroom sinks and how to succeed in business and like the act one finale Mm -hmm. is similar like Mm -hmm. a golden age like here's where everyone is at this moment in time throwing in different melodies together and songs together i love when the girls come back in with typical high school senior who's all nerves like just shit like that um it's very exciting although and when you listen to the demo version so the demo version also by the way we're I go all over the place, but I don't fucking care. This is my smile episode and I get to do it. The demo version is done with like six people and two synthesizers because it was just, you know, for Samuel French to when they licensed out the show. It's like, here's what the score is supposed to sound like. Because when the show closed, actually, no, even before then, when the show opened on Broadway and got mixed negative reviews, Marvin Hamlish pieced the fuck out. He's like, I'm done. This is my first Broadway flop. I don't want to be seen with this thing. And it's, you know he made it very difficult for anyone to record music from the show professionally because of that. He was so embarrassed by oh, it. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, little did he know. The music he... is so good. Like, I can't imagine hearing the score he wrote and being like, everybody shut up. Don't record this. It's like, I, I would be like, ah, fuck you. Yeah. Everybody has to hear this well, more. He, yeah, he, I think everyone needs to hear the score. And I'm hoping now that he's dead, his estate will be a little more forthcoming about it. But at the time, this was his 
big flop, and he would go on to have worst flops, worst flops than this one. I mean, Goodbye Girl and Sweet Smell Success both got Best Musical Tony nominations, which Smile never did, but Smile is more well-regarded than Goodbye Girl and Sweet Smell Success, like, completely. And then Mm -hmm. he had shows that just never came to Broadway. So, looking back, Smile is the best of the bunch, head and shoulders above them, but for a long time he was very embarrassed by it and like left the show and Howard Ashman kind of had to stick around to keep morale up. They, you know, talked about in the Howard documentary, he would come backstage all the time and like try to get them excited to do the show. And then he felt bad about the show closing. So he got Disney to agree to let any girl who was in the show audition for little mermaid, which he was working on the time. And then we all know the story. Jody's one who gets it. Of course. But like, but he had no clout at, Disney, even though Disney was kind of sinking, Disney animation was sinking, he still was like, please, these are all really talented young women. I'm so, like, I'm so upset for them that like this opportunity didn't work out. Like, can we give them this second opportunity? And they're like, yeah, sure. Fine. So all these young women got to audition um, and he gave and he gave the tapes blank to the directors with like no name on it, no headshot. So that way they didn't associate it with anyone who had a different part in the show. He was like, I want you to just judge the voice and judge the performance. Don't go like, oh, yes. Well, clearly we want the lead of your show. Like, Jody got it. Totally. Jody got it without them knowing it was Jody. Um, That's really cool. I actually didn't know that. Or if I did know that, I forgot that. But I, yeah. I, I like, I find that very admirable. Yeah. Because a lot of people just like to, like, love, cash, love to cash in on their... Um, Everybody likes to feel like the smartest person who invented the thing mm-hmm. and discovered the thing. And so I feel like there is a lesser person who could be like, and Jody, who, by the way, we discovered. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, and want to take to take t- some credit for the talent she brought to the table. But he's like very happy to just be like, they're all really talented. And I think they're all fantastic. Please just like give them a shot. Yeah. And Jody says the only reason I'm, Jody says, I'm convinced the only reason I got the job is Howard sent all the girls a demo of him singing Part of Your World so they could learn it. Because it's the 80s. And, you know, it's, that's how you learn the stuff. And she was like, I just mimicked everything Howard did. I mimicked his acting beats. I mimicked how long he held notes. And she's like, and, yeah. she's like, and I got the job doing that. And she's like, I do not flatter myself that I'm more talented or more special than any of those girls. I'm just the only one who knew to copy Howard. Um, yeah. Although you you will he- – I'm assuming people who are listening to this are listening to this because they like Smile. But I guess for the person who hasn't listened to it, like – Jody Benson's voice on the Smile recording is so unbelievably special. Mm-hmm. Like, it is a, in my opinion, like, truly, like, a must-listen. It's, like, very bright and expressive, and I feel like you have a very clear sense of her performance just from listening to her, her performance on the on the recording. Oh, absolutely. Which I love. I feel like we have, like, lost some of that in our modern recordings where things have to be, like, really, like, note-perfect. But like, Yeah, and pristine and clean, yeah. I, I always felt I'd, like, I, I understood her performance just by listening to it. And it's also really funny that we started this podcast with you saying, like, you were really proud of your performance because, like, I remember being really embarrassed by my production of Smile. because you like, were, No, I didn't say you were proud of your performance. I said you were proud of your Avita pose. Okay, that makes more sense. I, I can understand me. I can understand me saying I was proud of a joke that I did for you in a musical, as seen by many people, including not you. So that makes sense to me. Um, but like I, you know, like when you're a teenager and you're like doing theater and you don't feel like the quality of the theater is matching like your um, the dream in your head. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like I did not go to a school that had like a big robust theater program, and I was like really like chafing at the edges. Mm-hmm. Um, And, like, I remember being, like, so embarrassed by being, like, but I have such a clear idea in my head of who Doria is. And, like, I felt very inspired by 
how emotional um Jody Benson sounds on the like the recording and I remember being like she's like she's like a she's a raw nerve she's a live wire she could cry at any minute the smiling is just to keep it together do you know what I mean like I remember feeling like I had so many ideas about her but like you know what 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 the fuck do ideas mean when like you're stumbling on your carpeted stage with this show that has been like un- like hardly staged I don't know um yeah there's also really I want to be very show. clear I adore Jody and I I do think she's special. I'm quoting Jody in the documentary where she's like, I'm not very special. I just I copied Howard. Oh um, no, I didn't think that you were like putting Jody Benson slander on the timeline. I just want everyone like- to know because <laughs> goddamn at this point people should know because I have praised that hoe so many times. Everyone knows my thoughts on Smile and Mermaid and like her voice is insane on the Crazy Free Cast album. There's also a video of her doing chess in California in the early 90s. That's incredible. Um, she's just she is she is extraordinarily talented and she sings Disneyland so well. Um, how do we even get here? Oh, uh, so yeah, uh, the demo is Jody and Anna Marie Bobby. Howard Ashman does a bunch of stuff, uh, d- plays a bunch of roles, and they're like three women. But so with, until tomorrow night, hearing those like five women just sing it and you know really sing their tits off but there's a nice blend to it and you have the synthesizer which gives it a nice kind of campy satirical feel then listening to the broadway soundboard with almost 20 girls and a 25 piece orchestra you're like oh this is loud this is big and i get why this maybe didn't register at the time because it being the 80s and then going out of town and going like we have to compete with cats and les mis they just kept totally. making the show bigger than it needed to be and especially that song which has as you know it starts with that one note that da 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 da, da. and i think they wrote it they either wrote it out of town or they wrote it right before they went out of town because hamlish talked about it in the documentary he's like i was i think it must have been before they were out of town because i remember seeing footage of it from that production in Baltimore and then the audience is reacting really positively. Yeah, it was, it was, it wasn't in the workshop. It was a new song because they needed a new act one finale. And they're talking about how the stakes are high and everyone's anxious. And, and Marvin just starts plunking out the one note and does it over and over again. He's like, wait a second. I think that's the beginning of it. And then that led to the song and you get anxiety in that song with that one note and the way that it builds. And I, if I were to direct it, I want to keep the bombastic nature at the end but it has to build there especially because the lyrics are just so good which brings me to what i was gonna say five thousand years ago which is one of my favorite lyrics what no this is on me one of my favorite lyrics in the show um is a pop culture reference where the girls ask um i think it's how have i gone so far i wish i'd look like terry gar i wonder what my chances are it's so bizarre until tomorrow night and terry gar in 1986 just like beautiful abon beautiful like movie star looking and i just love that these girls are they're like they have every thought in their head going all on all at once and i just love that like howard ashman has time for a little pop culture reference in there i also yeah. i also love the lyric um look there's the windowsill i think i'll jump i won't i will why not there's nothing left to kill my heart be still until tomorrow night i'm Ugh, like go fuck those yourself those are amazing amazing lyrics i sense a feeling in this place it's making me a basket case the stakes are too high they unnerve and Even the whole like uh, craziness of the dressing room, I'm obsessed with. Um, which again, you know, Ashman 
altered a bit for Broadway. It's it's, it's those things where, like the lyrics on Broadway they're good. It's just they they got better. He just made it even better. And I and completely. And I'm glad that he didn't settle for what was just good because even the lyrics of the girls saying to each other, you know, Sean. And, and they're, again, they're all so specific. You don't even need to see what's happening to know what's happening. How can you eat that? I was hungry. I'll be fine. Um, uh, th- shit like that, where you're just like, you know that Sean is yeah. judging another girl for eating something fatty. Uh, who lost her rosary? Oh, gracias, it's mine. You know it's Maria. It's just, exactly. it's fantastic. It's so fantastic. Um, and then I also want to get into my the lyrics for Shine. Because goddammit, Ali Gordon, if ever there was a number, a musical sequence that I'm obsessed with and no one talks about enough, it is Shine. Shine is fantastic. And is it interesting to watch the Broadway version and see how they changed it? Yes, very much so. I, I had no idea. I genuinely did not know how different the like version of li- the licensed version of Smile is from the Broadway version. Yeah. All of the changes are smart. All of them are for the better. Yes. So like on Bro- so Shine is the number. Where we have Tommy French, the the smoking, coffee drinking, over it choreographer, uh, teaches the girls. It's essentially like the physical fitness routine. Uh, to put it in perspective with Drop Day Gorgeous, it would be the number with the benches with the paint. And totally. Yes. So Tommy's <laughs> teaching good. them. Except good. Tommy's teaching them it. And... Uh, in the stage show, it's mo- it, the, the whole structure of it is that they're bad and then they get good by the end of it. And while this is happening, the girls are also meeting the Elks and saying their little speeches. And then we check in with Brenda, who's ready to finally win this time. On Broadway, it's mostly, you know, Tommy is, you know, dancing about a storm. And it's funny to watch this guy who's like definitely past his prime dancing full out with these girls falling on their backs. And then on top of this, you have Big Bob leading the girls with the Elks. And then Brenda shows up finding out that she's going to give a speech at the pageant. And that's sort of it. Oh, and then we have uh, Doria and Robin have a minute together after Doria has bombed her minute with the Elks. And it's a great transition that just I love on a chemical level, but I think that it's better in the Samuel French version on a storytelling level, which is when... Mm-hmm. Doria says, uh, I, uh, this is my year, Rob. I can feel it. I can taste it. Oh, God, I want to win so bad. Bum! You say, oh. Like, it's a great intro into it, and I love it on a chemical yeah. level, but I, but it's better in French. Anyway, the licensing version. I bring this up because the licensing version, the two major arcs are the girls learning the number, and then Brenda sort of uh, micromanaging the entire pageant now that she knows that the head – of the company that sponsors the pageant is going to be there to watch how well it goes and possibly promote her. So those things are all sort of interconnected and there's a bit more of a darker edge to it. So like Brenda says to the Elks, uh, you know, we are not, this is not about physical beauty. The pageant is not a meat show. And then right on cue, Tommy shouts to the girls while rehearsing thrust with the pelvis. And, I just I love it's changed like that that really show you that like they added some of the edge back in and then all of Ashman's lyrics luckily are unchanged you'll feel healthy and Jane Fondaful which is I, I'm sorry that is a uh, that is a, a lyric that is lyric. Yeah, it's fantastic because it's just beyond it's camp and not camp at the same time and he gets away with it because the song is meant to sort of be camp it's uh I want to punch him in the face and then kiss him on the mouth <laughs> but uh there's a moment and we, t- we, you and I talked about this at drinks a while ago, Allie Gordon, and I don't know if I've ever actually said this on the podcast. I've told this to people in person, but I want to now talk about this in regards to my Maria Gonzalez view. 
Yes. Yes. I know what you're going to say. Yes. Please, please do. So there is a brief moment in Shine in the licensing version where the girls have to practice their talent in a room with stage management before they eventually do it for preliminaries later that night. Uh, Talent rehearsals, room 415. And we get to Maria and she's with a stage manager and she's going through all the sound cues for her cooking demonstration, which we will see in about 15 minutes. And she's all business. And she says, you know, cue the music here, blah, blah, blah. I say, clever mama, see to laugh, laugh, laugh. I gesture, cue the tape with my backup singers. You got it. And then someone shouts, are you ready, Maria? And she turns around, smile on and goes, see, which is Ashman trying to have that whole election Reese Witherspoon element of like, she's all business. And then when someone who actually has a say in the matter is there, she's back on. It's a musical home economics demonstration. Very difficult. So timing is everything. It's all on this sheet so you can study it. I hold up the chili relenos, applause, applause, applause. You hit me with this spot. I do the breaks, I clever mamacita, laugh, laugh, laugh. I gesture, do the tape with my backup singers. You got it? Are you ready, Maria? I really want, when I direct Smile, to drive home that Maria is fully aware of what she's doing we meet Maria. She has her scene with Sean. She gives the guacamole to the judges. And she has, you know, her thick accent. She goes, I am Maria Gonzalez. And then in Shine, when no one is watching, and it's really important that right, this It's just stage, her and the tech person. Yeah, and it's really important that the tech person knows exactly what to do. So, like, pretense falls away. The accent goes away. And we hear Maria just say flat out... Visible. Cue the uh, tape with my backup singers. You got it. And then when someone important comes back on stage, they say, are you ready, Maria? Accent is back. And she goes, see, and walks off stage. And we get in that moment that all these stereotypes that people are judging the show for, Maria is in full control of. Yeah. I, I mean, like, and I think that, I think that's like a great way to direct it. And I think it would like help with some of the stuff if we were doing it in a modern way. Mm -hmm. And I will also say, not that you're not saying this, but to affirm that I think the book is doing a really good job of affirming that Maria's in on it too. Like, even like, it feels in line with Howard Ashman's vision. Do you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. You're not not changing a word of it. Like, we're changing everything. Like, it's very, it is exactly what they meant. I just think it's like another really good way to... uh, acknowledge how in control she can be and then I also think it makes it even sadder when like the control is ripped from her by in like an act of violence because like she's so savvy and like obviously she's playing she's playing by the rules of somebody else's game but she's winning Mm -hmm. which is like which is like sucks because like obviously we want this to be the world where everybody's rules can win it doesn't have to just be like the white homogeny mm-hmm. but like do you know what I mean? but like the fact that she's like eh, fuck you i'll win i'll win but I'll, I'll, i won't even win playing your game i'll play my own game and i'll still win that like it, it's uh very tragic that like everybody's soft spot everybody's downfall is like the same thing which is like having your like humanity stripped from you and like being embarrassed and not being stuck up for and like all those things like those are the things you can't win because they're un- unwinnable. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, there's no there's yeah. no amount of savviness that like that like gets her out of that. Like, it's just an act of violence. You know? Yeah. I don't know. Well, I would there's... love to see a revival of Smile. I like I, I I know that you are right that there is a lot that needs to be looked at with a critical eye, but like, it does not feel like a glass case can't touch it. This musical just won't work musical like it really I, I would just like really love to see somebody's take on it 
I think the way to do Smile is you definitely have to treat it as a period piece, if only because of all the references. Uh, also, one of my other favorite things in the soundboard from the final preview is when they're doing Young and American, which is the performance for preliminaries, and they sing like Jerry Ferraro, We Girls of Tomorrow. You hear, again, the entire audience just guffaw at the audacity of that rhyme. And that's not something that I think a lot of people would laugh at today because Gen Z doesn't know who the fuck Geraldine Ferraro was. But right. That said, you have to use it in that context because the similarities between present day and 1986, they're, they're just way too many. And to keep it from seeming heavy handed, you can't look at the audience and go, see, see the mirroring, just like play it very much. It's 1986, play the satire and audiences will make the connection on their own i think something like not having maria put on an accent and then having one second where the accent goes away as you said it's all i'm trying to do with that as you were mentioning is make it more overt of what ashman and hamlish were doing in the script because i think it's there and if you watch it on the broadway version like a lot of maria's scenes actually are cut which makes it a little more of a gray area but they add them back in for the licensing version to make it very clear Mm -hmm. that she is smart she's on top of this and the tragedy of her storyline is like america falls under this myth that isn't true of hard work will find you success and success means money and doing things your own way and you know if you're not making enough money you're not working hard enough if you're not successful you're not working hard enough and sometimes you got to play the game if you want to win the game And Maria is someone who is playing the game smartly and would probably have won, but because someone else who has so much more agency than she does is able to undermine her, Maria can't bounce back from that in the same way that anyone else could. And yes, so like also just because like there is an acknowledgement in the show from the people's reactions to it that like show that the natural inclination is always to blame the woman Mm -hmm. in the situation even if you're being like no 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 it's horrible that it happened like like we would never want this to happen on our stage obviously she can't continue in the competition because there's just too much drama yeah that is still victim blaming do you know what i mean like oh yeah it is still putting her at a disadvantage even if the words are correct if the actions don't meet the words then it's I don't know like it. it's just it's a show that succeeds because it like I think accurately reflects I, this is a metaphor I've never used before and so like the reason I'm like having such a hard time putting it into words is because like I, it's not like something I've like said and I'm like this is gonna this is gonna kill but like I'm <laughs> kind of like parsing I'm like parsing it as we're talking but it's just like there are a lot of things that you can do to succeed in the rubric that has been created by somebody uh, more privileged than you are or somebody who has had more power than you. And, like, a lot of the show is about these girls being like, hey, fuck you. I'm still going to succeed. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that, like, in the moments where the game becomes unwinnable and you are reminded that there is truly nothing Maria could have done in that moment that would have her win because society is set up in such a way that there is no winning that mm-hmm. kind of situation. Yeah. Um. You're like, oh, well, damn, that is still yeah. true. And it's a really good point. And it makes these girls extremely sympathetic, even in the moments that are more satirical. Yeah. And like that is such a strength of smile that it, it seems like it did not start that way in its inception. Like from what you were talking about with these like workshop versions that were just sort of like, isn't it funny that we make women do this? Hee hee hee. Yeah. And everyone who ever Crazy. competes in them are, are stupid flesh bags. Like, yeah, dumb bimbos. Like it is like amazing that this is the show that grew out of 
the inception of that idea. Like, I'm so impressed by the growth of it. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, absolutely. I yeah. I was listening to a podcast that that discussed Smile, and I listened to it because a friend asked for my you know thought that I would enjoy it because it was about Smile, and I was actually really li- angry listening to the episode because it was very nasty towards the show, and like it's one thing to not like the show or like any show; it's art, everything's subjective. But like both of them were just blatantly misunderstanding everything that the show was trying to do and often succeeding at doing. And I was like, I never wanted more than just to jump into a podcast episode and yell at both of them and be like, you're not smarter than, than Howard Ashman. He like that, that was ridiculous on purpose. Or like, this is a heartfelt on purpose, you know? Uh, and the criticism they always had was like, what shows is trying to be? Is it satire? Is it heartfelt? I'm like, it's both. It can be both. You need it's both. You need a beating heart in order to keep audiences connected. And the satire is because a lot of what these people are doing is ridiculous. Like we can feel for Doria and still find her talent absolutely ridiculous. It is. And it's intentionally Correct. so. Um and it's like the same thing of I was saying of just like even in what is smile turned up to 10, which is like drop dead gorgeous, yeah. without the scene of the mom saying to Kirsten Dunst, you need to go out there and win because this could be the thing that changes your life. You don't care if she wins because you're just sort of like watching characters in a satire as opposed to like real people who you like want. So we can flash back and forth between Denise Richards wheeling around a Jesus and also Kirsten Dunst and be like, both of these things can be true. I can be laughing at how ridiculous and stupid that is, but I can also, because you have told me to, genuinely care whether or not this girl wins. Yeah, that's without Kirsten Dunst's character, without Amber Atkins, Drop Dead Gorgeous does not work. And that is why we have Doria and Robin. Uh yeah, I mean, also, I think Ashman's really good at showing you sometimes, like, that these are girls. These are – teenagers are still children. Their brains aren't fully formed yet. You know, they, there's a, they've there's matured in a lot of ways. There's this weird oh – God, there's this weird thing, especially I mean, especially with women, although we are seeing it more now with young men in Hollywood with, like, the Heartstopper Boys and, you know, when Tom Holland was uh, – is that the Spider-Man Tom Holland? Yeah, yeah, that's him. As he's gotten older, like, the jailbaity mentality of, you know, when when a person's body matures in a way that we have now associated with an adult's body, and, and especially if, like, someone's quote-unquote an early bloomer, we start immediately sexualizing them more, even if it's not like, oh, the things I would do to them, but now going like, okay, your body has gone through the change, which means you are now a sexual option to the world. And totally when you're 16, 17. And so now I'm free to say the thing that I was going to say anyway. Exactly. And, but you're 16, 17, you are still relatively new to the world. And I think Ashwin's really good about balancing that of showing that these are Girls who are getting, who are starting to get hardened by life and definitely hardened by the pageant, but they are still very much children and their world is still very small. And while their bodies are being objectified, their their minds are not fully there yet. And th- there's a there's a fight between the two, and I really like that he does that. He has a stage direction at the end of Until Tomorrow Night where like the number ends in a pillow fight, and it's something along the lines of like the children that they being like now they're like the children that they are. Yes, I remember that even from just like reading the libretto. Like, oh my god, thirteen years ago or mm. whatever. Like that. Like I remember being struck by that moment of just being like, oh yeah, like when when they blow off steam, they're just kids. They're just like children. Yeah, yeah. Just 
And it's all great. I just like yeah. I think it's a great show. And honestly, hashtag justice for smile. Just hashtag justice for smile. I had petitioned Encore to do it for many years. They never responded, and I felt uh, offended by it. I didn't want them to do it after this season, but after Into the Woods was actually pretty good. Maybe I would be into it again. But I would want to be in the room when it's done. I I have thoughts that need to be said, and I my fear is that someone's going to come in judgmental of the show and overhaul try to fix it yeah yeah and like again i wouldn't say that the show is perfect i think it's 75 percent successful which is i still think a really high number and the other 25 percent isn't bad it's just not as good as the other 75 percent um but i i don't know i think i I I do think it works there was a i was just doing some research on smile before we were recording and um I was, like, making a note in my notes about being, like, I just find the older people material to be least, the least compelling stuff. Mm-hmm. Whatever. We've already talked about this. And yeah. then in, like, you know, some subsection of subsection and of subsection of a Wikipedia article, it said, A production of Smile was presented by the Awkward Stage Productions in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Awkward Stage's production featured all the adult characters as being played by puppets a la Avenue Q. <laughs> um And I was like, what? Weird. What? But then I was like, I don't know. I mean, they're they are basically just puppets do you know what i'm saying like yeah because the show has already said like ah these guys aren't important i'm like is that brilliant i mean obviously you can't just judge something on a concept like you need to like see its execution but like i'm kind of intrigued by the execution of it like i i would i would see that if i could i think because like that is like a huge part of the show it's like either there needs to be less adults or more adults but like as it is right now uh, neither is particularly compelling i think i honestly think a lot of problems would be fixed if we cut Bob's song. And I get why it's there. Bob needs something showing his, like, inner turmoil, I suppose. But I think it slows things down, and we don't really need it. And we don't have that much... When you cut that, there isn't that much of either Bob or Brenda, as you would think, when something that uh, uh, looming is there. And I think a lot of the smaller adult characters add a lot of spice of life. I think Tommy French is a lot of fun. I think... Uh, what's the name of the host? Uh, oh, sorry. Oh, Dale uh, Dale Wilson Shears is the name of the guy who owns the pageant. That's his name is Shears. Dale Wilson Shears. Uh, uh, Ted Farley is the MC. Ted Tommy Farley. French is the pageant yes. choreographer. I love yeah. all the Ted Farley shit. I love his intro. Um, in the top of Act Two, get the get the button, get the hook. I hear he knows yeah. the president. It's so. I think it's so oh, good. Um, I love that. True girls know him, know him well, and Nancy too. Girls, but then the way he hosts, the way he re- repurposes Tommy French's uh, fictional wooden foot story it's i think it's oh my god that part is so good too yeah i guess i guess i'm being unfair by saying the adults and really what i mean is is brenda is brenda and bob Bob. and i i would really narrow it down to just bob because while brenda is not as exciting as everyone else brenda at the very least has a character color and i totally and and something to play especially like i think her opening song is pretty solid the very best week of your lives yeah it's very my favorite moment of the bee if you if that is a more contemporary reference that people like jive with which is just like the lady who still runs the competition because when she did it as a kid it was so great and it changed her life yeah um i mean if i also like one of the benefits of spelling bee is that while she is a character and there are moments of sympathy for her the show is not about her and it like doesn't get like bogged down in her and i do feel like this show goes a lot back and forth between like 
hey, Brenda, isn't your life better because you won? And she's like, I'm sad. The American dream sucks. Straight <laughs> marriage. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I think it's just it just is a little too it bogged down. It's like not. And it's. And the irony is that on Broadway, it was even more bogged down. Like, she and Bob had this big old fight in Act 2 when all the shit went down. And she's like, I can't be perfect for you anymore, Bob. Because, like, in the show, the whole trajectory was, like, he was always promoting how beautiful she was. And he just wanted to be proud of her. And, you know, let's just constantly be great. And she's like, it's too much. And then in the stage show, it's not... Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. The stage, the licensed version becomes, you know, she's the one who wants the perfection, and she's become sort of an ice queen in general. Not like unfeeling, but just so very determined, which obviously is its own kind of trope. But it's, I think it's, I think it pays off in Act Two when all the shit goes down and Brenda's the one who has to save the day. She goes out and she makes this giant speech about family values that, again, sort of means nothing, but it's passionate enough that it riles up the crowd and everyone's like, wow, Brenda, totally. you really did it. And Pop's like, are you like, did I just marry like, a nobody monster? Nobody did anything. Yeah, exactly. No, I really I like that stuff. Yeah. And I also do like that after sort of being played for a putz the entire time, mm-hmm. um, Bob is the one who's like we can't let this happen. And everyone's like, shut up. We're going to let it happen. And you don't know what you're talking about. And he's like, am I insane? Yeah. Like, I also just like, I like that. Um, uh, how do I put this? Like, it's a, it's an interesting moment for, to see Bob, who's like, ostensibly a pretty a nice guy. Like, we've never seen him like, engage in anything weird or lascivious or anything no. to be like, oh my God, I'm raising a pervert. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So like I, I I like that and I think that that's like also again slightly ahead of its time in terms of like subject matter that like mm-hmm. a perfectly normal totally fine guy like monsters aren't raised by monsters you know what I mean like his son's yeah. just his son is hanging out with the wrong people and he's doing shitty things that he shouldn't be doing and he's like not parenting well enough to like have caught it but like it's not because like he's a guy who sits at home and like makes shitty comments on the couch about women's bodies and so it's like it's like I learned it from you dad like. He's, like, shocked by the notion that he, like, has raised this little monster in his house. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it's so the whole little Bob thing is a combination of, you know, hands-off parenting and then not sort of disciplining your child, endorsing your child, uh, not teaching them structure or values or anything like – or having any repercussions to their actions. It's – it's when uh, people say – there was a – there was a moment – in my family's time when a child in the family was being kind of a brat and they were getting called out on it. And the parent of said child said like, don't undermine their feelings. And everyone kind of did a big rolling of the eyes. And we all had a moment where like this child will either become a good person in spite of all this, or they will become a monster. Luckily the child became a good person, but like it's that kind of, yeah, it's that kind of mentality of, you know, not don't I don't want to undermine my child. I don't want them to feel like they aren't enough. They're enough. You're amazing. You're wonderful. It's like no. You want to encourage your child to be a good person, and sometimes that means disciplining them. Sometimes that means watching what they're doing. And Bob, you know, realizes, oh, we've been touting how our son's just an adorable all-American boy, while not actually paying attention to any of his actions. And look what he's becoming. Correct. And look um, what he's done. Exactly. Yeah. I think so. If I were to make some changes to smile. 
uh, I think I would do three things text-wise. I would cut Bob's song in Act 1. I would add a little bit of the Broadway orientation into the licensing version again, just when the girls are reading the schedule. I just love when mm-hmm. they're when they're reading the itinerary. And there's the lyric, it says at 6 a.m. They wake us at 6 a.m.? I love that. Um, <laughs> That's very good. Yeah, and the music's good there, too. I would also add um, when they're announcing the winner at the end of the show – because it's the four girls on stage. It's Robin, Doria, Sandra Kay, and John. It was Maria was going to be in the top five, and then she got eliminated. Uh, having the music build in Doria's head, having her sing to herself Disneyland, of you know, um, I'm going there to Disneyland, and uh, and once I'm there at Disneyland, I'll Sandra Kay McAfee. I think that would be a really great build up to her winning. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's like a nice like pull the rug out from under you, and then I would have a moment where like. We actually see Bob take little Bob off stage or, like, say to Brenda, like, Brenda, we're having a conversation with Bob now. Like, you need to come. We Like, we have things we were going to talk about. So we don't have to see the conversation, but we know that the step's going to be taken. Because I don't think we ever see that totally. moment. We have and then Bo- he's, like, initiating that. Yeah. Bob, he does say to Brenda, like, we're going to have to talk tonight. But I would like little Bob there as well. Just just, just for that moment. So those those are the only things I would I would alter. Everything else, I think, still works really well. Yeah. Yeah. Hashtag justice for smile. Hashtag justice for smile. I don't even know if we talked about everything I wanted to talk about this episode. I blacked out the moment we began. Uh, I know. Same here. And also, like, it's it's it, when a show is good, you could sit down and talk about every song and every lyric and dissect it. And like, we just simply do not have the time. But like, we do not have the time. Remember how, like, when we were talking about the frogs, I was like, hey, if you really like Sondheim or if you, like, are really interested or if you really like Nathan Lane, like, you should listen to this because, like, I think it will appeal to you. Yeah. I would not stop the I would not stop the average person on the street and be like, do you know the score of the frogs? You got to get home and listen to that. Yeah. I feel differently about this where I'm just like, I do think this is a score that has been sort of forgotten to time. And, like, people might know Disneyland but not the rest of it. And it's like, it is so good and it is so witty and lovely and like i do think that like, if this is not a cast recording in your rotation you should like find a way to listen to it absolutely I th- it's it, the demo recording is legendary now in cult groups and it, you you need to get familiar with this score it is a wonderful score it's one of the best scores of the 80s for sure i think i would argue it's actually hamlish's best score uh while his chorus line maybe is a little more uh com- com- and compact I just think he's more ambitious musically with Smile and I think it pays off so well I also think Howard Ashman's lyrics are absolutely fantastic and yeah, there's just so much here if you are interested in the art of lyric writing this is like a, a prime contender up there with like the best of the best of the Sondheims to yeah. like be like I'm gonna look at every single lyric on this page and study the internal rhyme and the reference and the wittiness and uh, being clever without pulling attention also writing in the perspective of the voice and the point of view of the people who are singing like the references are appropriate to the age level and the intelligence level like he's not just showing off how smart and witty he is like it's it's pretty astounding work yeah it is it is fantastic highly recommend uh ashman did get the only tony nomination for the show for his book uh which insane that that's it but okay well so what's even more insane is that so smile opened in november and then closed in january and then the tonys were that june but rags which opened in august and closed after four performances got a musical score book and actress nomination and on top of and on top of this starlight express came in with a bunch of nominations and i'm like okay you may think smile is flawed and certainly the broadway version is 
more flawed than the state than the licensed version. But that score is a hundred times better than Starlight Express. That show is oh, better than Starlight for Express. Sure. Yeah. There's, there's there's no way you can argue that the score is not better. Yeah. Hashtag justice for smile. Uh Allie, Hashtag justice for smile. Uh, I know we gotta wrap things up because uh, it's a busy, busy Sunday for both of us. So um, wow. if the listeners feel like we there's more to discuss and this is going to be a long episode anyway but if the listeners feel like there's more to discuss i think we should do a part two on the patreon for broadway breakdown if you're interested sure great fantastic we'll do we'll do a another part of this on the patreon i'll take questions that we uh from the listeners that we can answer primarily about yeah, the show yeah, yeah. i want to hear I, that's the thing is like i think i probably said all i have to say about my initial impressions about the show and its impact and how fun it is mm-hmm. um but like i would be interested to hear other people's experiences with it has anybody seen it did you see a bad production did you see a great production did you see a production at your high school because they only had girls like like do you know what i mean yeah. like, i am very interested by like how how this show happens to come into people's lives um, yeah, and I'm, I'm because, interested. Like, if it hadn't been for me doing it in high school, I don't know if I'd ever know Smile. Do you know what I mean? Sure. I, yeah, I think that's, I mean, I well, no. Knowing me, you would eventually know Smile, but you would not that's know true. it. To, you would not know it to the extent that you do if you hadn't done it. Yeah. And then on the Patreon, if you if you donate lots of money, uh, so, Matt and I will sing every part of Until Tomorrow Night. Until Tomorrow Night. Um, okay, so... Part two will come at some point on the Patreon. Don't you worry, my little chickies. And if you have questions that you want us to answer for that episode, you can DM me at Matt Coplick, usual spelling, on Instagram. Uh, Allie, we have three questions we got to wrap up with uh, about Smile. Yes. Over, under, or estimated. Do you think the show is overestimated, underestimated, or properly estimated? Underestimated, 100%. I agree with you 1,000%. The missing link. Is there anything that you think is missing from the show that could really click a lot of things into gear? fixing the Bob and Brenda stuff. Agreed. Um, I don't think there's anything that needs to be added. I just think trimming. Uh, yep. Yeah, we talked about it, cutting his song. And then I think just similar to how we talked about the West Side Story remake, where we're like, just like trim two or three lines per scene, Tony Kushner and Rick Golden. Yes. I feel the yes, same way with yes. Bob, and, Bob and Brenda. I'm like, yeah, just cut two lines for everyone, every scene that they have. Like, we got it. Yeah. yeah. Um, last question. This is a toughie. Castaway, who would you like to see in a production of Smael? Ooh, that is tough. Yeah. Mostly because, like, um, I would really like this to, in an ideal world, to be, like, a bunch of up-and-comers the way that it was when it was first cast. of Just, yeah. like, really talented young people who were not names. Like, I don't really have any interest in seeing, like, the Mean Girls cast step into the roles <laughs> and smile. I've, like, I, I would really like to 100%. see some, like, fresh-faced, uber-talented people. And you know that I hate seeing kids perform. So it really does take a lot for me to admit that, like, I would love to see a talented 16-year-old's take on the character. Like, that means I really need it. (laughs) Yeah. I think – let me be clear. Like, I think Erica Henningsen's straight out of you, Mish. I would have loved to seen her Robin. But now I think she – Oh, totally. Me too. But now she's too old and she's too well-known that it's – the bloom of the discovery of her is gone. But – Yeah. And, like, it is fun to discover people. And there are so many fucking talented people out there. And, again, like, I also – when I'm saying young, I also mean, like – a 24 year old is still young yeah like i'm not saying it has to be like we plucked them from the high school hallways no. but like yeah with, i'm just interested in seeing some new people in yeah this. with these with these girls you need to cast under 25 because they need to have the ability to do it eight times a week while also and the, and the stamina and the technique while also having that youth about them as well that's sort of the the difficulty with the show in general is like you run the battle of being true to the satire of these being high school girls in a pageant with low budget 
and then being a Broadway musical. So it's like, how do you choreograph Young and American? Do you go full Broadway or do you go half Broadway? Like, what do you do? Um, yeah. And you see that in the bootleg where, you know, they definitely uh, surrendered to just trying to be Broadway. So the choreography became too much. Uh, it's very Debbie Allen 80s. I would think the two women in my head right now that I would love to see is Brenda, just because I think they would A, deliver the vocals and B, have deliver that kind of uh, humor is either Carrie Butler or Sutton Foster. I think they would. I think they could nail the humor of Brenda being sort of an ice queen and very pageantry, while not being stereotypical. Who was the woman who won the Tony for Promises, Promises? Katie Finneran. That's who I want. Interesting. I think she could do the 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 dialogue. I'm not sure she could belt it the way I want. Like I just think of Marsha Waterbury belting the "I'm sure that I'll win this time," and I want. You don't think she could sing that? I think she could sing that. She couldn't sing Annie, so I don't know. Maybe <laughs> I don't know. Maybe maybe she she surprises all of us. Uh, Are you talking about like the song like Little Girls? Yeah, where she sings Little Girls. Little Girls is surprisingly high. I think he belts like a D at the end. It's yeah. like one of those songs. That's like, it's like that's like sort of like a sneak. A sneak hard song to sing. No, absolutely. Because Dorothy Loudon was not just a brilliant comedian. She also was a belter. Yes, she was a belter. And she made it sound so easy that people always think of that role as not being a singer's role. They're like, yeah. oh, well, let's get whatever the funniest actress is. But, like, you got to really sing in that role. You, oh, you absolutely got to sing because Dorothy Loudon is what we call a talent alien, baby. Yeah. Yeah. Which I always thought was a real term, but I've had a few listeners tell me they never heard it before until this podcast. And maybe I coined it. Oh. Yeah. Just, I, yeah, see, I was going to be like, well, I've heard it, but then again, you, like, were my brain worm in my formative years. So, like, honestly, like, I'm not the correct audience. <laughs> like, like well, but yeah, I've been saying it since I was 17. It's like, well. Yeah, my, uh, because the, the because of our friendship, Allie, I'm like, people know Corin Boy. People talk about it all the time. Then I go, or oh, has just, or has just <laughs> Allie Gordon been talking about Corin Boy for 15 years? They're like, no, people didn't see that one girl saw it four times. <laughs> and hasn't Jeez, shut up the about it. New bot it was really good, you guys. <laughs> oh, my God. British people loved it. Yeah, listen, and British people would love Smile because they would go, huh, silly Americans. Yeah, exactly. I don't care if they're laughing at me if they can get if they can get it back on Broadway. Yeah. Here's, here's my castaway for Smile. Let's do it at Encores. I need to be in the room. I would actually really like to see Casey Nicola do this. I think he could handle the choreography and direction combined. And he, I think, can do the sardonic tone that it needs, having seen Mm -hmm. his Mm -hmm. Anyone Can Whistle on the way that he did Drowsy. Uh, Otherwise, yeah, I'm not sure who else I'd want to see handle this show. Uh, I'm just happy to see some new people, yeah. Yeah, I also, I I know that it is primarily about women, but I do think I want a gay man running the show for this one. I, it, there's just something about the diva worship that gay men have that I think would benefit this show very much so. Totally. I mean, like, I feel like I've said this before, <clears throat> if certainly to you, if not, like, definitely on this podcast. But, like, there is a sort of, like, um, when girls are going through an awkward time, like, there is something about the, like, affirming nature of, like, women are amazing. Women, like, di- the diva worship that, like, makes you feel less ashamed about being a woman and not quite figuring out what your uh, niche is in womanhood yet. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's like, it's just difficult. Cause like, like when, <clears throat> ah, my voice, um, we've been talking for so long. Uh, <laughs> I really like have. went through a very, I was like a very ugly teenager, which I'm sure you're not going to say I was because you're my friend, but like, I like had like a hard puberty and like, there was a lot of time where I was just like 
who am I? What do, what do I do? What am I contributing? People don't like me. I'm not fulfilling the womanhood that I've been told to fulfill. Do you know what I mean? And there's like something about like the friendship of gay men in your in your like weird formative years that like um, makes you be like, I can sing or like I have a strong perspective or I, I made a funny per- I made somebody laugh today who I think is really funny. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think that's why female talent aliens and gay male musical theater creatives have created so much amazing Broadway history because that connection of being odd and different and not sure of your placement brings them together and then creates magic. I mean, you know, I talked about Howard Ashman and Ellen Green with Little Shop and the magic that is. Yes, like that's like a perfect example of somebody being like, I affirm you for exactly what you are because I find it fascinating, unbelievable, you know, like don't change a single thing. In fact, be weirder. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. And like that is like such a special, it is like really like a special relationship. Like I try not to talk about it in a way that's like, you know, uh, too overly generalized or fetishizing exactly. But just like being like that there's a reason that that exists in so many people's lives and it's because like there's some 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 sort of weird magic in that connection that yeah. like is universally somehow true <laughs> well you don't fetishize it Allie, because you treat your gay friends like people which sounds like not a very hard thing to not do not you like. i treat you like dirt <laughs> yeah no you treat me like dirt in a musical theater encyclopedia <laughs> i do i do have some female friends who do treat me basically as a musical theater encyclopedia and i know that they care about me but like i never get asked about my life you always ask me about my life and so i think it's not fetishizing to talk about that connection in the way that you just did because it is part of it's just a small part of the whole like relationship and you're aware of that and you talk about it and, and you know, you connect to all of it, but like also, yeah, that connection is there and the affirmation is there on both. Well, ends. And that's what you're saying too. Like in the other thing of being like, I am aware that the show is a show about women, but like, I do think that there's like a, a, a valid point in having like a gay man at the helm yeah. being like, I see you. I love you. I'm excited about this. I have really some, some really strong ideas. I'm going to make sure nobody looks in bit like looks bad. Yeah. I'm going to be really affirming to all of you. Do you and, know what I mean? Exactly. And as we wrap things up, I just want to say I'm confident in this belief because a little over a year ago, I was getting ready to put the pieces together to do a staged concert of smile for like half a week doing like five performances in the middle of summer. It was right before Broadway came back. Uh, friend of the pod, Justin Mendoza was going to MD it. I was going to direct it. Oh, and my God. Well, and I well, So it's scheduling and just budgeting didn't work out, but I think we're going to still try to make it happen. But I reached out to a couple of different women I knew. I didn't reach out to you because I just wanted you to be in it. But uh, I reached out to a couple of different women I knew who was like, you're a good director, blah, blah, blah. Like, should I direct this if it's about women? And they all were like, listen. I'm a woman who directs. There's not a single person alive right now who's better equipped to direct Smile than you right now. And I really do think that's true. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? I think there, but the, I think that is that. Yeah, I don't know. Being a gay man in musical theater, again, not to fetishize or overgeneralize, but because for years we have looked at the female roles as sort of like us living our fantasies. It's why, you know, gay men gravitated towards Patti Lapone and Evita. You know, we get, we get to see someone be a bitch on wheels in the way that we always want it to be. It's why we all gravitated towards Streisand and Funny Girl, these over-the-top personalities, totally. these larger-than-life talents getting to just do their craziness, and we live for it. They're, we're not, it's not us um, 
taking over a narrative that isn't ours. It's us, you know, honoring it because we love it so much, you know? Yeah, we got really off the topic, but I do think this is a very interesting conversation. <laughs> it is an interesting conversation. What a great way to end this episode. Um, <laughs> I know. I mean, yeah. it's, it, feels, it feels thematically correct to be talking about a show written by gay men about young women to, like, end with this conversation. But, like, boy, oh, boy, we really... We went to a different train track entirely. We did. Allie, where can people find you if you want them to find you? Uh, If you want to find me, you're going to have to fucking work hard. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I'm on Twitter at Miss Alice Nutting, M-S-A-L-I-C-E-N-U-T-T-I-N-G. Yes, like the character from The Mystery of Devon Drood. I'm also there on Instagram and all these other places. But, you know, I'm really trying not to be on Twitter too much now. I don't know. I just see see some whack shit. You know what I'm saying? It's all over the place, but I'm very glad i don't have a twitter i only do the insta and even then that can be annoying but you, you make what you do you make what you do <laughs> don't we love stupid um, non nonsensical phrases like that you make what you do you make what you do i was also going to say like if you live in and or around new york city i do perform musical improv with my team rumble teaser i don't have any dates on the book right now so it was silly for me to bring this up but we will most certainly do something this summer so if you're around come see us yay as I mentioned, you can follow me on Instagram at Matt Coplick, usual spelling. Uh, if you like the podcast, you can give us a nice rating, a review. You can subscribe. You can tell your friends about it. Every time I see that we get a new rating, my heart gets a little happier. Uh, no reviews since I last uh, recorded. We got we got a review during the hiatus that was really lovely, and I read that out loud. Then we got two more ratings. But I would love to get to 100 at the very least by the end of this series. Uh, maybe even a hundred and maybe even a hundred and ten. I don't know. I would just really like it. It makes me happy. As you know, Miss Gordon, let's do a hundred. Come on, let's, guys. Let's do a hundred. Come on, guys. Let's make this happen. As you know, Miss Gordon, we close out with Broadway Diva every episode. I'm trying to think. We've done Benson. We've done Jody Benson. Uh, we've done Ellen Green. I'm trying to think who else is sort of smile related. Uh, smile related. That's yeah. tough. Well, I did say I would love to see Carrie Butler in this, and I don't think we've done her yet. Uh, okay. Yeah. She's the one who I famously shouted she's 90 at when I saw Beetlejuice. She's 90? Well, yeah. The story goes, and anyone who's listened to the Cats episode knows this, I saw Beetlejuice with my friends Amanda and Sophia. And we went in not expecting to like it, and we ended up really loving it. But top of the back two, Carrie Butler sings a song called Barbara 2.0, which ends with her hitting a giant high note. Yes. I, oh, boy. Yes. I have no memory of this. I blacked out, but Amanda claims that I stood up and shouted during the applause, she's 90, because I was just so proud of Carrie for not being a young ingenue anymore and still having it. Uh Obsessed that you went all the way to the age of 90. Yeah. Well, she's much older than people realize. I think she's in her mid to late 50s now. But... Well, she's not 90. I know, but that was... I was probably exaggerating. I was in... It was the heat of the moment. End this episode with the end of Barbara 2.0 with the, like, G she belts or whatever. Yeah, with the insane high note she does. Thank you so much, Carrie. Um, As I mentioned earlier, check us back next week when we cover... Carrie, she is the sound of this and thunder. I went to. I am jealous that you will spend an entire episode talking about Betty Buckley's vocal prowess without me, but I'll live. Such such is life. You make what you do. Such I, is life. You make what you do. I was also in a million different keys when I sang that line. Whatever. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, we'll check you back next week, everyone. Thank you so much, Allie. Hashtag justice for smile. You make what you Hashtag do. Justice for smile. Justice for smile. You make what you do. And take us away, Carrie. Bye. Bye.
Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking.、Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and、uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick, so I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.